You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, Sean Connery steps into the Bond shoes one final time as Kevin McClory gets another chance to make Thunderball. It's 1983's Never Say Never Again. James Bond. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Bondzilla podcast. I am Nick. I'm Will. And uh, we are continuing our post uh, Bond canon life as uh, we're preparing to talk about the second of two unofficially made Bond movies. Well, I mean, they're officially made by somebody, but they're not part of the official canon. They were officially made. This week's Bond episode, Connery returns. The man, the the OG returns and graces us with his Bondy presence. uh, And he, he said, he said, never, never again. But then we learned that you never say never again. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yes, we are talking about the second of the two non-Eon Bond movies today. This is 1983's Never Say Never Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the return of Sean Connery uh, to the role of James Bond. Uh, and the return of Kevin McClory mm. to the producer role of James I saw Bond. him at the top of the credits. Yes. Yeah. Main on beginnings. All right. And so just to establish as before as we get into production, uh, as we established at the beginning of Casino Royale, that Casino Royale 67 was the same year as You Only Live Twice, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, the last Connery movie before he first quit. Uh, so just to kind of get in the context of where we are within the Eon canon, uh, Never Say Never Again comes out the same year as Octopussy. Uh, so we're just at the end of Moore's run. Mm-hmm. Um but before we really talk about 1983, before we talk about Never Say Never Again, uh, just to we should reiterate the context of why this movie is being able to get made. And just as a review, uh, in the late 50s, Kevin McClory, the um, Irish film director and producer, gets together with a friend named Jack Whittingham and Ian Fleming to develop a film-specific version of James Bond, which originally is called uh, Longitude 78 West. Uh, and James Bond of the Secret Service before becoming Thunderball. Um, McClory's first film uh, doesn't do too well. Fleming gets very upset and does not want to continue the project, but basically takes the Thunderball idea and turns it into a book. McClory sues. Fleming settles. uh, And McClory gets rights to the film rights to the thunderball idea mm-hmm. uh eventually he first tries to make his movie um around goldfinger but realizes that he would not have the budget to make something to compete with the eon movie especially after goldfinger's success so he makes a deal with eon cubby broccoli and harry saltzman to make thunderball an official bond eon production Part of that deal is that McClory cannot use his rights to do anything Bond or anything of a Thunderball remake for 10 years after Thunderball's release. Thunderball releases in 1967, uh, so that means uh, McClory can't do anything with those rights until 19... uh, Sorry, excuse me, I mixed it up. 1965, McClory can't do anything with the rights until 1975. 
So over that period of time, McClory is trying to still make his way into his own film career. But things really haven't been working out. He does still do a couple films here and there. Uh, a couple, still another directing effort from him. A couple more producers. But he's always has this, his ace in the hole with that. And starting in 1975, he's going to be able to make you know his Bond movie. So the decade passes, 75 hits. And as we also said in the Spy Who Loved Me episode... Um, McClory basically starts his production and files an injunction on the Bond team who want to use um, Blofeld in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually, in that sense, uh, Eon decides not to really pursue that at angle, uh, pursue their own rights to Blofeld because they just had Harry Saltzman and that lawsuit happen. So they're basically like, all right, Kevin, just, just do whatever you need to do. Um, but they are keeping an eye on the production, which were which will play into mm-hmm. um, going into it. Uh, so just according to McClory and his various lawsuits, that this actually comes from a lawsuit that is in '97 when he's trying to do Thunderball again. Uh, this is according to McClory what he owns uh, in terms of his Thunderball rights. He owns Spectre and the Octopus uh, Signal or Signia. <laughs> He earned, he owns the characters of Ernst Strabo Blofeld, Domino, uh, Fatima Blush, and Fiona Volpe, who are within the two movies different uh, different but the same characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Bond up against the hijacked of atomic bombs. James Bond fighting the Sicilian mafia. Uh, the health clinic opening segment. Uh, a location in the Bahamas. Uh, a giant yacht that has a hidden hydrofoil and the rocket firing motorcycle. So that's everything that McClory own well, claims that he owns in terms of what he can use and what the Bond Eon team cannot use. Mm-hmm. And also that they share the characters of Bond, um, QM, Miss, Plenty, Miss Money Penny, Felix Leiter, uh, the Aston Martin DV5, and they both can have James Bond gambling in a casino. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's basically what kind of McClory is working with. But McClory comes through with a different couple ideas. Um, there's one idea where he wants to have James Bond go uh, do a thing in New York where he's going up against sharks in the sewers. Um, there's a while where he wants to have uh, Orson Welles as Largo. Mm-hmm. Um, You'll never get Orson Welles in a James Bond, Bond movie. movie. Yeah, no, in a James Bond movie because yeah. he's never been in a James Bond movie, I mean, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but what what is really concerned with now is that he does have another lawsuit hanging over him because he knows that if he really goes full force on this deal, even though Eon did not go with that initial lawsuit for, around Spy Who Loved Me, he does know that they will be watching him like a hawk because. You know, he only has the certain rights to Thunderball. And really what he has is the rights to the original Thunderball script. Um, and Eon's made it clear that if he even attempts to make anything that was similar to the Eon Thunderball movie, that they will go in, go all in on him. And so McClory is wondering if, if the dream is dead. If, in fact, that this script that he has, this rights that he has are useless because if 
you know, just like with his original intention of production, it's not like he's easily going to get the money for this. A lot of companies are not going to really fight for a movie that's going to be constant under the constant pressure of a possible lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he could probably get a budget because of how big Bond is, but are companies willing to take the risk? Now, we're going to talk about a man who helps save the the Kevin McClory, save this idea, a man named Jack Schwartzman. Mm -hmm. So Jack Schwartzman uh, was a major uh, entertainment lawyer. Uh, So a lawyer who... uh, uh, worked in entertainment. Well, yes, but it, 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 <laughs> what I'm trying to say is like his his specialty is lawsuits and, and contracts and stuff within the entertainment industry. Now, Jack Schwartzman is a, is a big name attorney, not just because of uh, his reputation, uh, but also because he is the husband of Talia Shire, uh, who famously actress of the Godfather and uh rocky movies mm-hmm. and uh, also you know a, i think she's the daughter of francis Ford coppola i believe um so she he also had that kind of connection into the, the big coppola family uh and so had a lot of connections there but at this point in his life uh Swartzman, uh had moved on from being an entertainment lawyer to actually starting his own independent production studio known as talia films after his uh wife who was a co-chairman of the company. And he had heard through the trades and heard through the rumors of this possible non-Eon Bond movie, this unofficial Bond movie, as it were, uh, that was coming up uh, you know, as a possibility. And what excited Schwartzman about it and why he wanted to make it his first ever film production and the first ever production of Talia, Talia Films was because he saw it as a challenge. He saw it as this challenge. is like, well, I'm a lawyer. I'm the, t- I'm ex- the exact type of person to make sure that this movie is completely legal because he has these legal rights mm-hmm. and he shouldn't have to, uh, you know, put them, put, uh, you know, put up with the threat of a lawsuit. Sure, sure. It's not like we're like, oh, Sony has the Spider-Man rights and Fox has the X-Men rights, so they can just use that and they share certain things. Mm-hmm, right. The big difference with this is that this is one man mm-hmm. who owns these rights to make this movie. And so it's a little bit even more dicier because, again, it's not like, you know... It could easily be a scenario where a studio wants to put a little bit more weight on, like, oh, you can't do this. Yes. You know, it's different when it's, like, studio on studio versus, like, just one guy uh, doing this. So, pretty yeah. Yeah, so Schwartzman gets into contact with McClory and offers to help pay for the movie, to help produce the movie. They'll produce it as an independent film. And then sell it basically to a distribution company. Um, so this was a very, very expensive independent film, mm-hmm. and definitely the most in, uh, most expensive independent film that anybody had ever made up to that time. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is, uh, you know, they so Schwartzman knew uh, Schwartzman and McClory both agreed that in order to make this movie work. They needed to make a big splash. They needed. They couldn't just make the movie and say it's Bond. They needed to basically say we're here to make a actual Bond movie. Mm-hmm. And the they f- couldn't coast on the name. They, they couldn't yeah. coast on the name of Bond. As popular as those Bond movies were, they knew that if they just put out this movie, it's like oh, it's just another Bond movie. Well, every you know, more was still very popular at this time. Mm-hmm, even yeah. you know, because uh, you know his popularity started to really kind of wane after Octopussy. But this is after you know For Your Eyes Only, which was a very, very successful film. But this is also still like, like to also put in that context. This is still at the height of like 
Moore's popularity because sure, yeah. the past two movies were Moonraker, which was you know became the highest grossing Bond movie of all time, and For Your Eyes Only, which again didn't do as well as Moonraker, but still did exceptionally great numbers all across the board. Sure, yeah, and and, and more, you know. You know, we'll talk about Moore always had that the Connery shadow holding over him, but this is at the point where Moore has established himself mm-hmm. and basically made himself the star of that franchise. Yeah, because it, it wasn't like Lazenby where there was like, oh, Moore had a brief stunt as yeah. Bond, and now we're br- coming back. So it is interesting. It does put this production in a very precarious situation because it's like right at the height of this ongoing franchise that everybody's like, this is the yeah. current Bond, and now this like new kind of adjacent thing is coming out. So. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's it's a risky proposition, Nick. So, so McClory and Schwartzman are like, we have to make this this big splash. Mm-hmm. So McClory had brief flirtations over the years with doing, you know, casting his own Bond, but really his his go for broke idea was like, well, we have to do one of the one of the two other Bonds because it's that'll basically be like the return of somebody to this franchise. Sure, yeah. So McClory's okay. Oh, then, then you're definitely done if you don't get like a yeah. name, like or like a recognizable right. Bond. Because, because then also, you're like, like, what is this? Right. Because like, realistically, you would have to get a very big name as Bond, like just a very big acting name, or get one of the two Bonds. And McClory's was like, well, if we get one of those two original Bonds, then you know, kind of one, we're kind of sticking it to Eon itself, and that's kind of part that can be part of the marketing. That it's like this kind of returning, and then you know we already have someone who's familiar with the material, so we can just kind of run with whatever we need to do. Now, McClory is thinking realistically, it's got to be Lazenby because I mean Connery's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. But he said never again. Yes. Yeah. So so McClory is has has in his head that we'll get Lazenby back and we'll give him like this his second chance at Bond, and you know. People remember Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but like you know, it's kind of still before that movie became what it was. Because really, that movie kind of came an all-time classic into the '80s and '90s, and basically now is regarded as one of the best of the franchise. Back then, it was still the last and B movie. It was like the one anomaly. Mm-hmm. But Jack presses McClory, and McClory eventually says, "Well, yeah, I am still friends with Sean. Sean and McClory had a great time working together on Thunderball, and in fact, in some of those early." ideas for um this movie um mcclory had actually just contacted connery for thoughts and ideas not that connery would do the movie but connery was like yeah sure i'll, I'll consult but smorsman was like will you have an in with connery and that would be the biggest get we could get because so connery's career at this point is very interesting because after bond after diamonds are forever he kind of went into this phase of just kind of going between stuff like Zardoz <laughs> and stuff like uh you know the man who would be king kind of going between these kind of weird alternate kind of odd films that mm-hmm. he would do and like kind of the more dramatic epics like that's kind sure. of where it was his career but uh, I and mean, also but like, that's not unheard of though no no i mean not. we see actors do that now absolutely yeah absolutely but this is like would you say hemsworth is in that period yes yeah i would say hemsworth is in, yeah getting chris, to that chris hemsworth just to, to be clear yes not not liam <laughs> no but he's kind of in that period where he has a franchise a known franchise this is the character he's known for under his belt now he's kind of like 
you can't really pin him down. Like he's like the funny guy. Like he's in a comedy, and now he's in another studio project, and now he's kind of doing something more dramatic. Yeah. So it's like yeah. So there's yeah. There's so that. but it's all this is also like right before. So it's like he's he's still a star. He's still a big name. Sure, but he yeah. really hasn't done anything of that type of stature since Diamonds Are Forever because this is really right before like his kind of re-pop culture coming out party. Because this is, you know, we'll get to that in the aftermath, I think. Because I think that'll make more sense there. But this is kind of like in a career career where it really could go, like, honestly, like, if you didn't know the second half of Connery's career, mm-hmm. it could go either way where he was like, you know, he still was a good actor, still was a big name. But, you know, would he, was he going to get back to that momentum that he had in Bond when he was one of the biggest stars in the world? So Jack Schwartzman gets McClory to contact... Uh, Sean Connery and, and set up a meeting and in the meeting Schwartzman just lays it all on the table three and a half million dollars straight up part of the gross full creative control oh interesting. full casting control oh basically becoming a full-on producer of this movie essentially without actually being credited as okay producer, essentially. all right basically all right. like Connery will get whatever he wants okay so Last time we had this on a Godzilla movie, it it, uh, it, it caused some issues. So yeah. let's see how that turned out in the production of this one. So Connery is is essentially at this meeting, and he he's he is friends with McClory. He likes working with McClory. He considers what they're pitching him, and 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 then McClory also goes into well, Bond, you know, Connery, you're now fifty one, which is three years younger than more at this point. <laughs> um, so if we do this movie, we were thinking, well, what if we explored the retired Bond, the, the older Bond, like kind of make this the last Bond adventure, as it were. And Connery liked the pitch, he liked the money, and he liked the idea of that full creative control. So he took the money. He took the movie, and he decided that he would do this movie. Now, the thing about Connery taking full creative control is that he was not interested in being a writer. He was interested in kind of formulating a script that he would have fun doing that would be up to kind of his standards. But he was not interested in, like, kind of being in on the writing process. Uh, So McClory and Schwartzman, you know, hire a man named uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr. uh, to kind of take what Connery and McClory and everybody is thinking to make this movie. Uh, as the script is being written, they also need a director, and why not get a director of one of the uh, big, you know, who just made a film, one of the biggest film franchises, Richard ever. Marquand. <laughs> oh wait, wrong, wrong Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they had considered other directors. They consi- considered Richard Donner. They uh-huh. considered um, Attenborough, who would do you know Gandhi and stuff like that in that same year. But eventually, they come to the conclusion that well, they. There's only one name that they really want, and it's Irvin Kirshner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirsch. So Irvin Kirshner, for those of you who don't know, is the director of The Empire Strikes Back. Hence my Marquand joke yes. earlier. Yes. Yeah. Good Good call back. <laughs> good call. Um, which, is just a, as a funny note, makes Irvin Kirshner the only American ever to direct a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were just like, well, you know, he's going to be the hot name because he just did the Star Wars movie, you know, mm-hmm. and Star Wars is... You know, the, you know, they did Moonraker because Star Wars is the biggest thing on the planet. So it is the biggest thing on the planet at this mm-hmm. time. And, you know, why not go with someone who's who's that way? And to get to the rest of the crew, why not continue on the Lucasfilm train? Okay. Because 
they legitimately hire the entire production crew of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, nice. like literally like everybody who worked on that film. The, uh, the uh, director of photography, the production designers, the first AD, the second AD, all the crew, they basically, you know, that wraps up, what, in 1981, mm-hmm. and they're basically like, hey, guys, we'll get you all on together. So basically, that entire crew, other than Kirshner, are veterans of uh, Lucasfilm Productions as well. Uh, I mean, of Raiders of the Lost Ark specifically, but everybody has that Lucas connection. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll go to the casting now. Because this is, because uh, so uh, I was not familiar with this movie at all. So I was very surprised in the opening credits to find that it's a stacked cast. Yes, very stacked. So uh, before I go to that, though, I do want to mention some other stuff. Is that, and this is a common theme, is mm-hmm. that after the Connery hiring, they tried to get a lot of Eon Bond connections into the movie that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So like Connery's first choice for the scriptwriter was Tom Makowitz. Tom Makowitz wrote. Um, Tom oh, you mean more behind the scenes? More behind like, the scenes. Okay, people. got it, got it. So. Connery wanted to get Tom Mankiewicz on board, and Tom Mankiewicz had written Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and um, uh, Man with a Golden Gun, mm-hmm. and Connery loved working with him, uh, but Mankiewicz said, I, I can't do it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm indebted to Eon, it would be a betrayal. Then, it was also the idea of Peter, uh, saw, uh, Kevin McClory to get Peter R. Hunt, who directed Honor Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm. and the former editor of the Bond franchise to direct it, but then he said no. And then I just get to this. They also tried to get John Barry to do the score, and John Barry's like, "But I'm writing the Octopussy score. I literally can't do this for you guys." Right. But they kept like trying to get that. Mm-hmm. But so Connery had full casting rights to mm-hmm. this movie, and he had said that one of his biggest regrets with the Eon Bonds is that you know they would maybe get one or two great actors, but really those casts sometimes were kind of not. He didn't feel they were casted very well sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he really. They're all pretty. Like, they can often be very perfunctory. Yeah. And, like, yeah. you know, he, this person is going to be in this obligatory. He especially drives w- Bond from A to B yes. role. Like, so especially yeah. in that Connery era. Because once you get to the more, they kind of do a little bit more of, like, kind of casting. Sure. They slowly start casting bigger names. But really, like, in that early day, they only had a limited budget. So mm-hmm. it's not like they were going to get the big names. And Connery was already eating up a lot of that budget. So Connery was very interested in collecting a cast of of great actors to work around. Um, let's go ahead and start with the women of mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. Um, there's just two women who are in this movie. Both have very different uh, stories attached to their elements of the production. Uh, there's Barbara Carrera as uh, Fatima Blush, uh, our kind of femme fatale henchwoman of this movie. And there's Kim Bassinger? Basinger. 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 <laughs> it's a really... <laughs> Every- Which one is it though? Because okay, because that is like an actual thing. Like everybody, yeah. like that's the joke of. I think it's passenger. Is I it- think it's passenger. Bat. I don't know. Listen, you say it's passenger. I'm gonna say it's basinger, and then like we're let's kind call, of let's right. call the whole thing off. Yeah, it, but it's just like we're ultimately right because like both of us are taking a stab at it. So and then yeah, uh, Kim Bassinger as uh, Domino mm-hmm. uh, in this movie. Uh, Domino Patachi mm-hmm. in the original Thunderball movie. It was Domino. Vicky Vale. Yeah, this she is Vicky Vale. I just I just found that out doing research. How did you? What? How I forgot. I mean, you just I, find that out. I mean, I just it was one of those things where I'm sure what? I knew that, but like I completely forgot she was Vicky Vale. Until, How can you forget that? That's because bat- Batman. Well, I will remember if they ever do anything with Vicky Vale again. But that character has completely disappeared. <laughs> oh off man, the dude. So let's start with Barbara. I'm going to start with Barbara. 
Uh, so Barbara was a favorite of, of Irvin Kershner. He was Irvin Kershner was very high on her from previous performances, and Connery looked at the material that Kershner had, you know, seen her in, and said, "This sounds good to me. Why don't you go?" Mm-hmm. You know, what was her, her what was her name again? Uh, Barbara Carrera okay, as a right, Fatima yeah. Blush. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Kershner calls up uh, Barbara and basically is pitching this character, pitching it great. Um, you know, this big thing, you're going to do all this stuff with Connery and it's going to be really fun and here I'm going to send you the script. And Barbara said when she got the script, she was mortified that her character in that version of the script that Lorenzo Semple Jr. had had written, that she really only had like three scenes and a couple of lines and she was dead. And she got together with Kirshner and she was like, this is this is not what she told me this was. This is This is not a role. This is a cameo. This is like, what is this? And Kirshner, but, but, oh, please call him Kirsch. <laughs> Kirsch. And this is something we'll get into a little uh-huh. bit, a little bit later. But Kirshner's like, listen, this, this, this script is still in flux. Connery is still making some decisions. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff. I don't know if this writer is going to stay on board. We mm-hmm. might have to do a lot of rewrites. But you are a star, and. We're gonna work together to make you, and I would know because I directed Star Wars. So, yes. <laughs> uh, to make you a star on this movie, if you go on me, it's one of those things. Like, if you go on with Journey, sure. it is going to be worth it for you. I mm-hmm. promise. What Barbara hadn't told anybody on the Never Say Never Again team is that she already had an offer on the table to play Octopussy in mm. Octopussy. So she had a guaranteed Bond deal on the table that she could basically be playing the lead character of this Bond movie which would be a guaranteed nice paycheck, a guaranteed starring role, uh, a movie that a lot of people would definitely see. But kind of the plea of Irvin Kirshner with the... uh, Also the promise of being able to work with Connery led her to turning down that octopusy role Mm. uh, to take uh, the the chance on Never Say Never Again. Sniped. Sniped an actress. And Kirshner was not wrong when he said that he wanted to work Barbara in as much as possible. Because, Mm -hmm. again, the script was in flux. We'll talk a little more details about that in a little bit. But basically, any chance that Kirshner had to add detail to uh, the character of Fatima Blush, Mm -hmm. which, again, to reiterate, is the same character from the original Thunderbolt as Fiona Volpe, uh, that character was renamed in the original Thunderball movie after they cast an Irish actress, but this takes the original uh, Kevin McClory name uh, from the original Thunderball script. Um, so, but basically, like any chance, so like first scene that they do, uh, you know, Barbara Carrera just walks into the scene, and Kirsch is like, "That's that that walk's going to be iconic." So every time every time Fatima walks in a room, her first shot is going to be her feet, and that's going to be her walk. It's going to be her thing. Was, was Tarantino directing this? Jeez. I knew we were gonna make that joke. So you're, I mean, you know, we're, we're we read each other. Yeah, hey, you know, you, you know me. <laughs> but another like a, a really good example is that there's a sequence. There's a little shot in the movie where Fat- Fatima finds out that she has one more chance to kill Bond, and she's gonna like, you know, she's gonna make make sure Bond gets killed. Um, and she dances down the steps mm-hmm, uh, right. at this thing. Now Kirshner was basically like, we already have these. Uh, stairs lit for a different scene where, like, you know, Bond is walking down the steps. Like, uh, Barbara, why don't you just walk down the steps? Why don't we just do something with that? And then they basically choreographed this whole sequence together. Um, and basically, that was their relationship. So, as over the course of the movie, 
Kirshner loved working with Barbara so much that her role just kept getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. expanding and expanding to where she is kind of a standout of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she has no regrets doing the movie. She's very happy with how the character turned out, mm-hmm. and she's very happy. Excuse me, very happy uh, that she got to work with Connery. Uh, she was very proud that their sex scene that she not did not use a body double that mm-hmm. it was two the two of them together. She was very happy about that, uh, and she just had this is she said it was one of her career highlights. This this movie just working with Kirshner. Now Kim Bassinger, on the other hand, mm-hmm. uh, had a little bit of a tougher time. So um, Kim Bassinger, uh, for uh, was a famous model, uh, had already done um, some modeling for for Playboy, one of those kind of early major stars would would become kind of a sex icon of the '80s into you know the '90s, where she would been, you know continue her acting career. So. In the early uh, late seventies, early eighties, she wanted to transition from her modeling and kind of Playboy career into acting. Uh, initially, she did a lot of TV work, uh, a lot of kind of small little shows for like ABC and CBS, like a lot of cop shows that we can cancel after a couple episodes. Uh, but she wanted to continue acting and continue the movies. Now, similarly to Barbara, but earlier on, uh, Passenger had uh, turned down two leading Bond roles. Uh, she turned down the Dolly Holly Goodhead role in Moonraker. And she turned down uh, the main role in uh, For Your Eyes Only because uh, she didn't even read the script. She just felt like, oh, like that's like, not it was too easy, but basically like I want to do kind of more serious stuff. I want to, you know, try to kind of actually work my way into this. But by 82, 83, as this movie was kind of gearing up in production, she was getting a little frustrated. She wasn't getting the roles. She wasn't getting the opportunities. And she's like, I just need something. So simultaneously, Sean Connery's then wife and Talia Shire both see him in a uh, American TV show and they both exclaimed to their partners of Jack Schwartzman and Connery uh, that she would be great as a Bond girl she would be iconic she would be awesome she would be should be really cool and so Connery and Schwartzman both had the same idea they both get her to the role and Kim Bassinger is just like listen this is going to be this is going to be seen by a lot of people it's a Bond movie it's got Connery in it this is just my ticket in this mm-hmm. is this is my finally my foot in the door i ignored kind of the blockbusters before but i'll i'll try a blockbuster here but she was extremely nervous this was the biggest thing she had ever decided to take on this was still kind of early on in her acting career and now she was going up with Sean Connery uh, but not only that she was acting up against um, the man who would play Maximilian Largo Klaus Maria Bondor, who had just been in an Oscar-nominated movie, Mephisto, mm-hmm. um, and he basically was kind of another kind of... It was like a foreign actor who was kind of making the big splash. So, Kirshner had a really tough time kind of trying to calm Kim down. Uh, he noted that she was shaking a lot uh, before her scenes. Uh, more specifically, he remembers the moment where, like, when Bond and uh, Domino are having drinks together at the casino charity event... That her, she just would just shaking her glass so much that her, you know, cocktail would spill out. Mm-hmm. And she, Kirshner felt that she was so nervous that she just couldn't take direction well. And they took a lot of takes to to get her done well. And and Kirshner was just like, it was just a tough time with her that she just didn't feel like she fit in mm-hmm. because she was going up against these two, uh, you know, major actors. And she felt like, you know, maybe this was a mistake. Um. And Kim would honestly say that that was like of her early film stuff that was still like the hardest, you know, as Barbara had a great time on the film, Kim did not have great memories of doing the movie. Mm. Um, a couple other castings to uh, talk about. We have Max von Sydow mm-hmm. as Blofeld. And that was really just a Connery pick that he was just like, he, Max is a great actor. 
Why not? Uh, there's never been a great actor as like like that caliber of actor as as Blofeld, and the Blofeld character has really never done much, which he still doesn't do much in this movie. But we'll talk about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was wanted Max von Sydow in there. Um, I do also want to talk about our uh, Felix Leiter casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter. This is another Connery idea, and Connery's whole thing about casting Bernie was. The Felix Leiter role is never remembered by anybody. So if you make him black, it'll stand out a little bit differently because, it, you know, we don't really have many, you know, major like black actors in these types of movies. So Connery was just like, well, if we, you know, diversify the movie a little bit more, this is this will make this a little bit more memorable than just having another planned white guy play Felix. It's very, it's 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 very crudely progressive, I, I think. And I, I should also mention uh, that this is the first film role for Rowan Atkinson, mm-hmm. uh, who has a small role as kind of a British, uh, you know. Uh, Wait, this is his film debut. His film debut, yeah. He had done really? stand-up comedy, interesting, and like some TV appearances, like in Britain. Mm. But this was his first film production. Whoa, okay, that's that's a that's a fun fact right yes. there. Um. So as this movie's kind of gearing up to go, there's already starting to be issues with the script. Now, there's mm-hmm. two different stories about how this goes down. One is that the Kirshner and Connery side of things, as they've told it, is that Semple kind of shifted the idea from the movie of being just like, oh, it's Bond, but it's older, to being more of a psychological examination of like this retired spy. Which meant that as the script kind of shifted, a lot of the action sequences kind of got cut down because Semple was more interested in kind of the drama of this situation of a retired agent coming back to to do it. And Kirshner was concerned because um, he felt that audiences wouldn't buy this. That they would be, if they were going to see a Bond movie, they just want to see Connery be Bond, even if he's older. You know, you can still explore those elements of a retired agent, but they, they want the action, they want the silliness. And Connery was like, well, this is not the movie it was pitched. This is not like, you know, the retired James Bond coming back. This mm-hmm. is this is just like an old agent movie. So Semple Jr. then gets fired. Now, Semple Jr. has said that he was instructed to take down the action sequences for budget concerns. And basically, Connery kind of scapegoated him and basically blamed him for the script issues. And then he was kind of let go from there. Mm. Uh, so in his place are uh, two British comedy TV writers, uh, Dick Clement and Ian La Francis, which Connery was very big fans of their work on British television. Uh, kind of, they did a lot of kind of the comedy that was kind of very dramatic, that type of, of television, and Connery was a big fan of theirs, and so he got them into the movie. And Kirshner loved these two guys. He loved working with them. And they were very much like, Kirshner was like, well, if they had been on the movie since the beginning, this movie would have had no issues. This would have been like a perfect movie. And it was just basically like the unfortunate thing was they were trying to fix a script that we needed to shoot because we had deadlines of the budget and making sure we had, you know, the budget ready to go and actors had, you know, signed off already. So they were kind of basically working on a script. So as it turns out, the the new writers who go uncredited in the movie, they basically write pretty much all the first half of the movie. So they pretty much do the opening sequences. They rewrite all the the health hospital stuff, the first Bahama scenes, and the early casino scenes. And then kind of the simple stuff is still kind of the second half of that movie. Uh, and the writers also noted that it was a very tough script writing process because 
they had to get approval from Connery since he had full creative control and Kirshner, obviously. McClory needed to have a say because this was his dream project. And then on top of all of that, they needed to go through uh, Schwartzman and Schwartzman's legal team to make sure they weren't anywhere close to infringing on the mm, rights right. to yeah, keep the, all that in the, Eon, the Eon production. So there was a lot of kind of roundabout stuff uh, that kind of happened with the, the movie. Um, so the movie starts production Mm -hmm. with a kind of uncompleted script, which is where a lot of the, really the production issues with this movie lies. I mean, um, Kirshner has said that this was a very tough production to do because it was just that there were, there were times where you just didn't know what you were shooting the next day. You were, did you didn't know what was going to be available, what was changed, um, and he did take the opportunity to, you know, work with Connery and make him happy. And he said that the the, the key to this movie was Connery. That Connery kind of kept the production rolling, kind of kept the production light. And Kirshner said that if he, Connery wasn't on the movie, that this would definitely be the worst experience just film-wise of his career. Even though he was happy with, with many parts of the movie, it was just a very tough time at the uh, office. There was a lot of controversy that surrounded the movie, Legally, as well, you know, uh, Eon was constantly um, keeping tabs on what was going on here, um, especially now that they were nervous. I mentioned this a little bit in our in our Octopussy episode, but for a long time, Eon was under the impression that it was going to be Lazenby. There was mm-hmm. no indication that Connery was actually going to do the movie. So they, again, this is when Lazenby was still kind of the joke Bond, before that movie kind of came back into the public eye, or the Bond fandom eye. So they were like, well, we'll just let them do their thing. And then once the Connery announcement comes in, that's when it's like, oh, shoot, this could actually compete with us. This could actually beat us. And this would be an embarrassment to Saltzman, um, to Cubby Broccoli and even to Saltzman, even though he's not even on these movies anymore. This would be an embarrassment if this kind of independently made Bond movie just kind of went out there and just kind of killed it. So they were very much like trying to, you know, and Schwartzman did fill in all those legal loopholes, but Eon was still in that realm of like, hmm. You really can't do that. You really can't do this. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, you got to right. be careful with that. Even to the point of the title of the movie. So for a long time, the title of the movie was going to be James Bond of the Secret Service as the original, original Thunderball script was before it became Longitude 70 Ways, before it became Thunderball. But Eon got the courts to say, well, that's too similar to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. They both include the Secret Service title. So mm-hmm. can't can't do that, guys. Uh, so eventually the title comes from uh, Sean Connery's wife, who remembered that Connery said that he would say he would never play Bond again. And then she said, well, never say never again. And that's the title. <laughs> and of, that's history. That's, that is history. Uh, there was also controversy with the use of animals in this movie. Uh, yeah. Um, I was uh, going to ask about this. And uh, I was praying the whole time that you weren't going to say that, yet here we are, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so um, the mo- maybe the- one of the most conflicted I've ever felt in a Bond movie since the pussy galore sex scene. Like yeah. that, that, that may be. This so may there be was the a one. controversy uh, with the sharks um, in terms of that aspect of it as well. Yeah. Um, but the big controversy was with the horse. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so in this movie, well, no, 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 I want to, I, I want to hear about the shark one first. Well, it was just, it was just again, it was just like what it wasn't really regulated, wasn't really yeah. like looked on by you know the you know the people who give. You know, the people who gave those uh, no aren't animals were harmed in the making of this movie, mm-hmm. which had just not too long before this been established as something you do. But mm-hmm. the sharks were basically like, you know, they were just having real sharks. Those are there. real sharks, though. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, and, okay. and Connery still so, had a fear of sharks, but his fear of sharks from Thunderball had kind of lessened a yeah. little bit. So, hmm. um, And also, to be fair, it's very clear that it's not Connery in a lot of those underwater scenes. Hmm. Uh, so it's not like he had to get close to the sharks anyway. But it basically was them using real sharks, a couple real sharks, actually, and kind of putting them indoors yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So anyway, and then the horse. So the horse. Yeah. So there is a scene where a horse jumps in off a cliff into yeah, the water. That's that, that's putting it kindly. Yeah. Like that that makes it seem consensual. Yeah. Um well there it was an actual horse that yeah. did jump off into water. Yeah. And that is something that you probably should not do. <laughs> and and I should be clear. In the movie, it doesn't fall into the water gracefully either. Oh no. Like it's very much like a an animal fell off of a very tall thing and f- just flew into the water. Mm-hmm. But uh, but w- but what was that? Was that it with the controversy? Is just like it was just the, like the treatment of animals. The treatment of animals. Okay. Yeah. Because it did was, they kill any of these animals? No, is basically what I'm not, trying to say. Not that. Not, not that reportedly. I, not reportedly. <laughs> Nothing happened with the animals, but basically there was a lot of pressure on this movie from those animals rights activists. Uh, and as there should be. I, I was uh, I was one of them watching this. And it, it was actually one of the things where, you know, that, that tag of no animals being harmed to make in this movie did just start recently. But right. Never Seen Ever Again was one of a number of films that really put that into more regulation. Because sure. I mean, especially like, with the rise, more of the rise of independent cinema, it's something that would, you know, kind of come to a culmination in the 90s with, you know, Pulp Fiction, but was a rising aspect of the 80s you know these films were not under studio banners so they basically there were senses of you know kind of wild west filmmaking at a lot of points because even like for example i mean this is not related to animal stuff but they just basically took what they could get a lot of times well one of the things about the animals i'll say is like it's not cannibal holocaust if you know your movies yes it's not that bad but it is questionable some of the decisions so it's also like again they took they took whatever they could get so like um Largo's flying saucer, mm-hmm. um, the the ship that he has, was actually owned by a Saudi Arabian arms dealer, mm. and they basically were just like, "We'll pay you to use your giant ship." Nice. And that ship also, if you, I'm not going to say it, but if you look it up, it has a very interesting history of owners after that. So, <laughs> uh, certain people that don't have stellar reputations would eventually own that, that boat. Yeah. Um, it was renamed the the SS Weinstein. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot, of, a lot of the. I mean, there. There wasn't a lot of like the the actual like step by step history of this movie, mm-hmm. um, but the major issue with this movie is that this was a major you know the highest budgeted independent movie of all time being done by a first time producer former entertainment attorney who really just did not know how to like what the role of a producer is mm-hmm. on a movie because mm-hmm. it's like you know when you think of a film producer sometimes you just get that image of like oh they're just like. There's just this suit in, you know, in a, uh, you know, there's suiting in some office somewhere. Yeah, they, they, they write the check. They write the check and that's the it. And then, yeah. But like really in a lot of times, like the producer is like, you know, there and he's like, you know, kind of coordinating everything. So it's basically like, you know, like for example, there was one, you know, when they were doing this kind of motorcycle chase, like they were supposed to, you know, have a motorcycle go under some trucks. 
and the trucks didn't show up and everybody's looking the jack so like what happened to the trucks and then jack's just kind of instead of trying to fix it just kind of slakes off into like ah, i don't know what i'm you know right i don't know what happened and then like the line producer then starts having to do that and that's a lot for that per that line producer to do and then other people get frustrated and connery's like waiting to do his stuff and and you know kirstner's arguing with the guys playing largo because now there's a lot of waiting and they're debating about the acting choices and connery's just sitting there eating a steak and you know, it's all kind of like just, you know, and because Schwartzman doesn't have this experience, mm-hmm. um, that it's just kind of ha- is an issue. Uh, and, to and, the point where, um, even though she's not officially a producer on this movie, Talia Shire does step in and kind of takes some of her experience doing her, you know, couple of movies and her experience just being, you know, having more experience while on a film set. She takes some of the producer roles. It's also rumored but it's never been confirmed that Coppola himself helped out a little bit with this movie, came up with some ideas script wise and also kind of stepped in a little bit to do some unofficial producing. So mm-hmm. very much was kind of that mess of a movie to the point where Kirshner said by at the end of the movie, when they were doing reshoots and redoing the kind of stuff at the end of the movie, he just, he was done. He mm-hmm. was just like, I just want this movie movie. Out and then and, and for a movie like this, where it isn't like studio backed and it is more independent, like it is probably more imperative for like the studio, for the producer, themselves to have a more hands-on and creative role than because you don't have an infrastructure behind you uh because because you can like maybe have the argument that a lot of big studios at the time would take that approach of just you know making sure the wheels are turning and you know the crude metaphor of writing the checks and everything Mm -hmm. and and then sometimes that's what you do is just make sure that the vision of what is getting uh you know uh delivered as smoothly as possible but when it's like an independent uh you know uh wild west venture it's all hands on deck Mm mm-hmm uh, so just a couple of last things uh, to discuss before we get to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the fight choreography mm. was done by uh, Steven Seagal. Oh, well, it was the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- and this is also this is before like that's funny. Do you call him? Would you call him movie star or just movie lead Steven Seagal? Was he like? Would you call him a movie star? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't that? Sound- I mean, but like, I he's the thing where it's like. That weird, you. I, I get the hesitation, but technically he was because he's like you know. If you think of Steven Seagal, you know you know exactly the type of movies. Yeah. You know the image. He led movies. I mean, yeah. like that qualifies so, as a star. Long story short, he was the fight choreographer on this movie before he made it. Like he before he was doing under siege movies, right? Uh, and apparently during a training session with Sean Connery, Sean Connery broke his wrist, and Connery didn't realize it for about a week. Mm. Um, also, I just, I just wanted to point out that this the score is very not well regarded for this movie. Um, it's partially because again Connery initially wanted Barry, mm. and Barry said no because I'm I'm doing Octopussy, and then McClory wanted James Horner uh, to do the movie, mm. and mm-hmm. Connery was like hey, of um. Well, you got you got to credit wait, credit the man a little well, it's bit. Well, Wrath of Khan, yeah, yeah, so people know <laughs> Aliens yeah. and mm. uh, Titanic. Um, most known, like the the his he he had just done the Wrath of Khan score, and it was you know that was a big hit. But yeah. Connery hated Horner, mm-hmm. uh, hated Horner, and basically they found some jazz musician that Connery met in a film studio, and like so that was the guy who uh, did the thing. So they do complete the movie. Um, the editing process is again a confusing process. Um, the initial cut of the movie was very long. Uh, Kim Basinger uh, infam- infamously said it felt like. They had shot two and a half movies worth of materials just because of how much the script changed. Um, 
Kirshner kind of really shortened the movie down, even against McClory's wishes. Um, that he and but again, Connery had final say, and Connery kind of agreed with the cut, even though the cut that the cut of the movie that we have seen cuts out a lot of Max von Sydow stuff mm-hmm. and cuts mm-hmm. down a lot of underwater fighting, mm-hmm. which um, um, Kirshner was not happy with. And there was also a mysterious decision to include the an opening title song because they felt, well, the Beyond Bonds have an opening song. We need an opening song. Mm. Um, but it's really, a lot of people just didn't even realize the movie would have an opening song until the premiere. Uh, that was like how kind of last minute that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they shot that sequence as just an opening sequence for the movie with over credits and it was supposed to be this big dramatic moment and then a lot of people who worked on the movie went to the premiere and saw this weird love song opening titles and apparently that was a Jack Schwartzman idea but again that's one of those things where it's kind of disputed how that kind of came about Mm. so even into the end of this movie there was just kind of it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the mess that was Casino Royale 1967. But it doesn't sound clean either. But it's not a clean production. Yeah. And, it, I mean, and, and and to be honest, I mean, it really is the, the lingual tangle-ups and the issue with scripting that really kind of hindered this movie. Because otherwise, you know, it really did seem like they were on pace to do something, like, yeah. fine with this movie. It was just like... Having to constantly go back and the you know like I said like having like the four checks of the writers where it's like okay you gotta go to Connery you gotta go to Schwartzman you gotta go to McClory and then you gotta go to the legal team to make sure you're not infringing and then at one point Ian's like you can only use the words from the original script and then the courts are like no but then they're like well during this period where they don't know how can you write a movie with just the original scripting because right, right. it's that just doesn't lead for creativity and it doesn't give you know Connery the satisfaction of being the creative lead on this movie. So just a lot of just kind of that pressure on the movie kind of continues on. Well, I mean, the most interesting thing about hearing all this is like again, like you're we're in the height of a of a famous James Bond franchise going on right now, yeah. and it's just fun. It, well, it, it's fun to hear definitely that here's a Bond movie with the name that's unabashedly a James Bond movie. Yeah, and it has this really tumultuous grassroots indie approach. Uh, to it, and uh, and that is like the most fascinating thing about the production of the film. Yeah, I it think. very much is. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well. Uh. With all that said, Nick, I have to admit that was a lot more uh, tumultuous of a of a history because I had zero clue right. about what made this unofficial. What What is it? Because even if you look at like when you look up the movie. And you look at, like, the posters and everything for it. You look up the DVDs, the Blu-rays or whatever. It looks like a, yeah. an official entry. And, and, I mean, so the fact that, like, yeah. oh, with all this stuff, it's just... Uh, and the yeah. thing was is that, like... Because even with all the issues with the production and the issues with the shooting and the issues with the movie, I mean, they were still able to get a really good distribution deal with Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers did originally release this movie, and that's why you have the great marketing, those good posters. Mm-hmm. And this movie did come with uh, uh, good some bonus features too, so yeah. it's like I was a little bit surprised because you never know when you, we had to kind of go out of our way to get this movie, or you did rather. Oh yes, uh, uh, so yes, I, I, I will just say it now. Uh, yeah. I uh, actually I'll say that for the aftermath. Yeah. I'll say that for the aftermath. Um, okay, so uh, Nick, I've stayed uh, quiet on this movie long enough. Shall we talk about? Let's never, get, never, never say never let's again. Never not talk about never say never again. It looks like a watch, but it's really a laser. Keeps perfect time. But for how long? At least your lifetime. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull around here. Bureaucrats running the old place, everything done by the book. Can't make a decision unless the computer gives you the go-ahead. Now you're on this. 
I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Well, I certainly hope so too. Nick, um, I want to hear what you because I think we should let the audience know. You had not seen this movie. Yes, this is uh, officially one I had not seen. So um, we both went into this pretty, pretty blind, fresh, yeah. pretty blind, yeah. Um, so I, I, I think uh, I want to hear what your thoughts on the on the movie were. Like, uh, so we, this is a movie that was definitely a case of lowered expectations leading to a surprisingly enjoyable time. Um, we'll get I'll get more into specifics on the aftermath, but this movie has a very much a mixed reception. There's a whole bunch of different views on this movie, on its quality, on its place in Bond, you know, in the Bond kind of listings and canon, and, and what this means for Connery's career and all this sort of stuff. And so I kind of went into it being like, it, it it's not gonna. Be, I, I assumed it was not gonna be the worst, but I did not think it was going to be that great and i will say it's a thoroughly entertaining movie i don't think it's perfect in uh, in any means but it's very funny uh it's very solidly it you wouldn't think that it had a lot of production issues because it just seems very solidly made acting is great and when you look at the bond list like you look at least at my list there's a very decent possibility that if I put this within my Eon canon list, that if not just on the out, just on the end of the top 10, probably just outside the top 10. I mean, there's no way this is, you know, any worse than like something like a, you know, Tomorrow Never Dies or mm-hmm. anything like that. It's very solid. And really what this is to me is that it's just kind of proof like, just how much fun it is to watch Connery in the Bond role, right, right. Uh, because it's and it, it, this is not even like you know the Eon Connery Bond. This is like a slightly, this is a Bond. This is a Connery Bond a little bit more more esque in some ways, a little bit more of kind of the crazy humor aspect of it. I could imagine a lot of these scenes in this movie being in kind of a more production, but Connery still owns it, and this is very much just kind of like as much as. I say, and I still kind of hold this truth that I think that Dalton just overall has my is my favorite Bond package. Mm-hmm. This movie kind of just makes it hard not to argue that Connery is still Bond, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really kind of the most of the enjoyment I got. I loved this movie, loved it. Oh my god! I've been keeping that in the entire episode. I've been keeping it in. We didn't really, we never really talk about the movie, like engage about it. Too I mean, much I could afterwards. very much tell that Dude. this was your. T- this is a very Will type of movie. Dude. This is very much hits all the Will's boxes. Dude, that is the perfect way to describe it, man. I and let and let me say this: that even though I will stand behind everything I'm about to say. I do wonder, and I, I that's why I want to sit on it a little bit, even though, again, I stand behind all of this. There is a little bit where it has been a while since I've actually liked a Bond movie in, yeah. in this in this canon. I mean, Casino Royale, the 60s one, was its own little weird thing. I think we've established that I'm not the biggest fan of the Craig ones right. after after watching this. And I would say that like and there were like uh the Brosnan ones I was more favorable to, but yeah. I, I believe the last one that I straight up like I think thought was great was Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow Never Dies I liked then and after that it gets a little bit like more wish like just fine. Right. Yeah. Um okay. I mean but, but that's that's kind of like the history of that canon really. But this movie dude to me this 
I, I don't know how else to say, but for me, if I'm thinking about a James Bond movie, this was the perfect James Bond movie. And again, I don't know if it's because there was so much of this movie that was just such a good just washing my mouth out of like just those Craig movies mm-hmm. that they were just like so like and we and you know not to kind of like delve back into those movies but you know like the 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 grounded deconstruction that's not really a deconstruction movies that think that they're they're smarter than they actually are like this movie was just dude Bond like Sh- Connor is Bond just charming as fuck mm-hmm. like the and like the the act the action is fun the plot is simple enough the jokes are funny the flirting is fun and not gross like it's like I yeah. I just and it like the flirting like in like just like the interplay between like the 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 uh, the female characters the femme fatales and Bond is just fun and like just it's a fun very and funny fun movie and, and it's just um. Like, um, and I think like all the pieces that they, that they take from the Bond, uh, that the Bond franchise that they, um, that were appropriately used. Um, I, I just do, I loved every, like this movie just went, and I don't know, like I didn't actually have any expectations for it. I didn't know what type of movie it was going to be. And it just, the more and more went on, the more and more fun I was having with it and more so, and honestly, Quite frankly, more so than most Bonds, like, this was hitting and operating on a level that I was shocked how much, like, it was working for me. And frankly, and I'm going to say it, I, I, I know for a certain, I think this is, like, right towards the end, but this is a top fiver for me. Yeah. I absolutely love this movie. To me, this was just, as, a, as maybe as somebody who's a little bit more adjacent to it, this was the perfect Bond movie for me. Like it's like this delivered on everything I love about the character. There were there and and for the most part, I mean there was a few quibbles I have here and there, but like they I thought that it effectively worked through its tropes and I would say 95% of the time avoided the trappings of a Bond movie that made it like dated. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 there was more of a and it, we talked a lot about uh, recently about what do we want to see from the next Bond movie. And yes. then I just said, like, just make it like, here's the mission and just have fun with it. And that was everything that this yeah, movie was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then and then that goes right down to the plot, which we can segue into. The plot of this movie is that, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Spectre. Yeah. Uh, Spectre has a, a bunch of bombs and they hit them all over the world and Bond has to find the bombs. Yes. That's it. That's the plot. Yeah, you don't need anything else. Yeah, there's there's no like oh right. like you know how it's even it's effect? even a simplification of the Thunderball plot. Sure. Here's here's my thing about the plot, just generally speaking. I think it definitely works in terms of the context of this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of me that wishes that there was a little bit more of the drama because I think that's the one thing that, as much as again, I always talk about that original Thunderball as a movie that tricks me because I always imagine that I will like it better again on a rewatch and I will never rewatch. But I do think that the end of that movie with that big underwater fight does give a little bit more sense of an urgency to finding those bombs. And I feel like this is the that's the one of the few Wait, things. Wait, Thunderball? Yeah. It, oh, okay. Towards the, towards the end. Oh, Not okay. the beginning of the movie, but yeah. just towards the end of that underwater fight, there's a little bit more of that urgency there. And the last bit on the boat, I think, is a little more urgent than, than what this movie is. But overall, though... They do a good job at basically, again, you're completely right. They lay out the plot and they let Bond be Bond. And I think that's sometimes what the new Eon movies 
kind of get lost in. Because a lot of these newer Eon movies, even going back to the Brosnans, everything kind of post-Goldeneye, they take these big kind of complicated measures. Other than Casino Royale, but even Casino Royale in the end kind of gets a little muddled in its complications of twists and turns and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that kind of the story element. But like, what do all like what does Never Say Never Again do that all those more movies do? They basically like here's the mission, and then here's Bond being Bond. Well, speaking of uh, Bond and Connery himself, I think uh, I, I'd like to uh, start uh, with talking about him. Um, so the eternal struggle with these movies is always thinking about who is your favorite Bond and yeah. like who are you thinking and uh, and and I've and I've kind of been comfortable on record by saying that more may be because you know I I may have. Uh, you know, uh, wishy-washy feelings about like the movies, even though in general I, I do enjoy the movies. Um, but um, I, I generally like what Moore does with the character the most, like mm-hmm. in terms of his Bond. I am willing to say though that if you actually ask me who is my favorite James Bond now, my answer will now be Never Say Never Again, Connery. Like, I just thought, like, this movie, like, they they played into, like, because we also talk about more as, like, you know, he's, like, the older Bond, and, you know, it's just kind of weird and yeah. a little gross, like, at Once the end Once he gets of it. to that point. But, like, there's just some, now you under, like, I, here was the thing. I don't think I ever really understood what the appeal of Connery as Bond was yeah. until this movie. Like this movie, he's so charming. He's like he's like funny and clever and he's so like he has like this confidence of himself, but he also kind of feels like a normal dude too. Mm-hmm. Like he his like every time he looks bemused about something, it is it's so funny. Like there's so many times in this movie. Like he is first of all just on an acting point of view, like you could tell like like he was like invested. You know how kind of like remember when uh, um, Harrison Ford came back to the Force Awakens and you could just tell like yeah. oh he's actually into doing it this time right. around. I kind of felt that way about Connor oh, yeah. in here yes. because there's these little subtle moments like there there'd be moments where like even when a ridiculous thing happens, even he would be like, whoa, <laughs> like, like he would even be, he would even be thrown back by how well his flirting was working at times. Yeah. Like that, there was just, there was just these little performance moments. And so just even as a performance and as an actor, I thought Connor, Connery killed it, but just as a bond, like, you know, he always looked good. He was suave, but there were also moments where he wasn't afraid to look silly. Um, and, uh, and I just bought him and all just kind of like the interactions. Like this was the first, like this was one of the first times where like, I just looked at the character and I was just like, that's James Bond. I that, know. That, that's him. James so, Bond, you son of a bitch. James Bond, you son of a bitch. No, and, I think that's yeah. really like what makes this movie work. And I think Kirshner's not wrong that without Connery, this movie just w- would lose, have lost something. Now yeah. Kirshner was talking about it in terms of working with Connery and how nice Connery was. But I really agree that, like, just, again, like I said, it's hard to not, to watch this and not just say Connery's the best. Mm -hmm. Because it really is, like, in that realm of, like, kind of that From Rush With Love and and Goldfinger Connery that that I really like. And for a long time was my favorite version of Bond. And I think that, again... What it is is like Connery, you know, they lean into the old age stuff a little bit more than they ever did with Moore. And I think what works about that is, again, it's just Connery kind of almost commenting on himself and his own kind of like, oh, yes, I am. I'm a, I am an older, older man and I'm, I'm kind of in that. And I think Connery leaning into that and you're right, having all those bemused looks and being hysterical. Like he's very funny in this movie. 
His comedic timing is great. The material that he helps give himself is awesome. There are so many jokes we're going to have to talk about. But he, you're completely right. Because we've seen Connery phone it in. We saw You Only Live Twice. And that is by far Connery's worst Bond performance. And I do like him in like Diamonds Are Forever. You know, His peak is like those original three from Rush With Love, Goldfinger, and uh, Dr. No. But this is very much like even a Connery that just has more of that acting experience. Because even with like those first three Bond movies, Connery is a very good actor, but that's still very early on in his stardom. And even though like he, you know, he hadn't, he had kind of stayed away from the major blockbusters for a while. I just think like himself as an actor, because again, this is kind of where his pop culture peak is coming into. Mm -hmm. Like, again, we'll talk about it in the aftermath, but this is really kind of in some ways, a revitalization, revitalization of his career Mm -hmm. and kind of the way he approaches you know, the movies he makes. Yeah. And I do think that kind of that little bit, cause this is, you know, uh, his last bond movie before this was 71. Right. Uh, so this is 12 years later. And I do think that kind of experience and just having other stuff kind of makes him even more well-rounded than he was before his bond. And mm-hmm. I think like he really just ticks all those boxes of just like a great lead. You're great, charming, funny, action, intense leading man. Mm-hmm. And especially because it is James Bond and it's that, character and like i said it's kind of the connery bond mixed in with a little bit more of that more humor and it just works so well Mm -hmm. it just works it's definitely like in many ways like this like weird kind of like amalgamation of connery and like more almost in a certain way just because like i I gave more like the oh this is kind of like you could believe he's like a normal guy yeah and then like bond has that and then it's in or connery has it but there, it is a specific type of kind of character they go for. It's very like Clooney ish, where it's like the older, just like mm-hmm. you know, kind of like it's it's older and sexy and suave, but without being like you're too old, man. Like yeah. it's like it's something that like unfortunately I like more, but more like never really had like where it's just like he just once he got old, it was, it was just, just like what, old, yeah. yeah, it's like I mean what, that, that was always here? the issue because Eon would never play into that, right? And you don't have the pressure of that with this movie, so they can lean into it. Because the whole beginning of this movie... So, if we just compare it, for example, to the original Thunderball. In Thunderball, you know, they have the health clinic stuff. And in that movie, it's Bond going after, like, a hard-fought mission with the jetpack. And he's like, okay, well, I need to recover. In this movie, there's a new M Mm -hmm. who has... This M hates Bond more than any other M has hated Bond. Mm -hmm. And Connery... Or Bond has essentially been doing these training missions... To basically kind of prove that he still has, you know, the presence to be a spy. Mm-hmm. And at the begin, the opening sequence with the, with the mysterious song that appeared out of nowhere for a lot of people uh, is this kind of failed training mission where he's going into this kind of place. He's, you know, getting, you know, killing all the guys. He's about to save the girl, but then he doesn't even think that the girl could have been turned. And he's he fails. He gets stabbed. Mm-hmm. And M's like, you're not cut out for this anymore, Bond. And, and Bond's really like, listen, man, I, I haven't even been on a mission in like two or three years. I've just been teaching at the you know at, mm-hmm. the, at the academy. So like, what do you what do you have me? What do you want from me? Mm-hmm. I, I think I did fine. I did, the the timing was great. So they decide to uh, send him to a health facility to 
basically kind of revitalize them and give them one more shot. Well, to- because they're they're doing the whole, and this is where you can kind of compare it to the Craig Casino Royale, where it's like they do, or no, not Casino Royale, uh, Skyfall. Yeah. Um, because they do play with the whole like, all right, like they acknowledge that like you know that this one this Bond is a little bit older than like he he's a veteran, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, of of MI six. And that was, like, the first instance that was kind of, like, my first clue that I was going to dig this movie because instantly they paint this Bond to me as a very likable and believable guy within this system in the context that they're giving. Because, like, one of the issues I always have with Bond characters, and I know, like, this is kind of, like, the appeal of Bond, but they kind of give him that, like, smarmy like I'm the best and women always love me like attitude and even like Craig kind of has that like schmarmy like you know shit eating grin like kind of like attitude about him sometimes at least I feel that way and it's like it always borderlines on like unlikability which is why I never really connect like to me like the Connery Bonds in a lot of old movies is like a shitster like he's always like causing like you know issues and he's like thinks he's like the best man ever Yeah, and I just felt like this one was like there was no kind of like there was no like pretense of like bond like expecting like special treatment or anything like he's just like he's like the guy that's been like you know he's like no i've been like teaching man like you know he spars a little bit because he's got a little bit of rank but um you know it it was just there was just a more um grounded this is the type of grounded i like because grounded to me doesn't mean like oh you got to make the character always serious and dark right like this is a guy that you but like when i was watching this i believe that this was a guy that people would like like and that he's been working at mi6 for a while yeah and then like even and then comparatively when you go into like when he's uh um, and then that actually leads into the second thing when he's finally at the health facility. Yeah. And that's the, the, the next biggest thing I want to talk about is the flirting and his uh, his relationship with the women. Yeah. Probably some of the most palatable bond work like, you know, um, you know, flirting in like his his uh, interactions with women in this just because like at no like at least for me personally, like at no point like did he. At no point did it feel like kind of like too forced or put on or gross. Like yeah. it was just like he this is a charming, charismatic man. Yeah. And you know, and then he's gonna flirt with a girl and she's and then, you know, a girl like clearly okay, here's the thing. It's a James Bond movie, so they're gonna play up that of course like the women like swoon over him. Right. But the fact that like, you know, that isn't necessary. I've never argued that that's a taboo of a, the James yeah. Bond franchise but this was the movie that knew that that's what kind of the legacy of it was and it played it in a way where I, I no matter who you would be it's like yeah Bond like you yeah. know flirting with and all I, the women I, and I think what's also very smart is that they never played into the age in terms of that aspect of the character yeah like the age was always surrounding all the other aspects but they didn't lean into the fact that like he's like 51 and all these women sure are and even 30s. like there was the but scene it, where he, he, he says a flirty comment to I think a younger nurse but the way that the movie treats it like he says it and the nurse is like oh oh you bond and then well, that's it like and yeah because was it wasn't it the joke where it's like uh it was the piss joke right yeah where he's like oh we're gonna need a urine sample and he's like from all the way over here and he's like, all the way across the room <laughs> yeah. and the woman's just like oh like that's so silly but 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 a previous bond would have been like 
like in the, and the Connery. This is what was so amazing to me because it was like the Connery Bonds did this too. Like Connery in the old movies would just be like, "It's like, do you need a urine sample?" And then he would just like take her by the neck and just be like, "It's like, how about after, how about after a kiss or something like that?" Maybe like that's a little bit extreme, but it would be something yeah. similar to that. Whereas this one is just like a pithy comment here and a pithy comment there, and then like when he flirts with somebody, clearly she's into it. I mean, and- I think. I honestly, just loved it. It honest, was just so much fun. Honestly, one of the greatest advantages this movie has is that it was made in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Like that's honestly just from from everything about it. Because even then, like you know that sort of stuff that we talked about, like that would have like not not that it was like the norm, but that that wouldn't have been seen as an issue in the sixties. Where mm-hmm. it's like doing that stuff in the eighties. You know, even though it wasn't necessarily like the most progressive of its you know time and yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. It still would have been kind of a little odd thing. So just kind of having to tone it down just from a culture shift, mm-hmm. uh, I think. And, I, and it's, it's also just, again, it's just like Connery being silly. And I think that that uh, that actually that urine joke um, was actually, I think, a very big moment in the sense of just like really realizing, you know, from that moment on, like almost every joke lands. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, what I said it was stunned earlier was just like, I kept waiting for kind of like the really lame joke or the really thing that just didn't work. And it just never came. Every, that was, that every was, That's what I'm talking about, man. There were quips. And I'm like, every little bit quips. of humor that Connery has in this movie is gold. Yeah. Every little bit. And it, it like, it, it increases in like how funny it is and how clever it is. And I just kept like, I even like look to you at like at one point just with kind of a look of shocked glee on my face. I'm like, I can't believe this movie. I'm enjoying this movie as much as I am. So, yeah, so we're going through the health facility stuff. But even like, so he has the thing where he, they do the thing where it's like, oh, yeah, like he's trying to flirt with a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, well, we'll have like an appointment in my place there, your place, that first time that joke comes up. And it's basically like, oh, this is actually his physical therapist. And mm-hmm. he's basically like kind of actually trying to, to help him get his back out mm-hmm. and, or like, you know, recover his back. And, you know, Bond makes a joke like, oh, there's another way that, uh, you know, we can uh, do a lower back exercise yeah. and like, stuff like that. But then eventually she does come to his room, basically. Sure. Because, but, again, I believe like Bond, it that right. because it comes off across as, like, and you may, you could even read it as, like, maybe they've had a romantic tryst before. and But you just believe yeah. it that, like, because it's not like he's just, like, like you yeah, know, you, just you're t- my yeah. woman. It's just, like, he just flirts with yeah. her and then it, like, falls into well, all falls Because eventually, because the whole thing with that is Bond is, like, on this, like, very strict diet. He's not supposed to have any, like like alcohol or like you know like major food this is supposed to be kind of like rice and stuff like that yeah clean diet clean diet so she comes in with like kind of some treats that are still like kind of in the healthy thing what the stuff says but then connery just opens up his suitcase and he basically has like a full meal out he has like vodka and, and there's like, a and giant like bottle of absolute vodka and some caviar it's it's amazing and then that's how you which was yeah. one thing is that it's absolute proof that bond is completely an alcoholic yeah like mm-hmm. just like there's no doubt about it but it's also just again a very little fun just a little moment mm-hmm. can i can i talk about the joke where i'm like okay yeah this movie's great yeah. So at one point, so eventually Bond fights, uh, does the fight in the uh, in the in the right. health facility. So like he just real quick, like he he eventually uh, witnesses Fatima Blush and like her the machinations of Spectre, even though he doesn't really know it yet. And we'll get, I think we'll get in a little bit of detail, but basically he knows it, and so Spectre sends someone out to kill him, and mm-hmm. he has the big fight throughout the whole facility, and mm-hmm. there's all again all these silly jokes. So he tries to, you know, it's like kind of like a 
like a you know like an invisible type of henchman where mm-hmm. it's just like you you throw a dumbbell at him and it doesn't affect him right, because yeah, he's so yeah. strong. But there's all these like there's all these silly moments that lead up to it. Like there's this they're fighting in the background, but all the all the patients are watching a soccer match, so yeah. they don't hear it. That was but I know, awesome. So, but there's all these little bits where they and they go in the kitchen and they're breaking like glasses on each other and stuff like that. It's it's just a kind of a crazy extended fight. But then we get to this so, great so this great joke. Basically, what happens is that earlier we they had the urine sample joke with Bond, and then Bond. Uh, they're in a room with a bunch of vials and beakers and such, and Bond picks up one of the beakers and throws it in the guy's face. And again, this is where I think the movie's actually pretty brilliant because they're playing with the trope of like you would assume like what do you, what would you say like, like acid when, yeah, or, you or like say, some sort and of the guy's like oh my god, and then he like falls back and like, like it, on, and it hits and hits his head on it, something. Well, he, yeah, he hits his on a cabinet and then like and then he's like clearly like incapacitated, and Bond looks at the. The, what, um, what he threw. What he threw at the beaker, and it's like, James Bond, urine sample. And then he's like, what? And then he like looks up back at the guy, and then the guy like falls over dead, and it's because like all the glass from the cabinet that he like, yeah. impaled him and everything. And then, but it was but, just But it's like, also because Bond's just like, like he, get, he also kind of rolls his eyes, but like, in that kind right. of funny way, he's like, oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. But it, again, but like that was the, that's your first kind of taste at like the movie is, it's pretty. It, it, it's operating on the level that it should, and it's operating on this fun level, this slightly self-aware level without being, like, too cheeky about it. It's just, like, it's just good, fun action I don't want to say action comedy because that makes it seem like a comedy, but that is what it is. It's action with that sense of humor and with that sense of whimsy. That was like that was the big thing that I loved about this movie. It had its confident sense of whimsy and it never really like went back on that. Mm-hmm. And and I just thought like then that was like my first introduction. Like because I also thought like even like the whole opening of the movie, I was on board. I thought it was great. I thought that they truncated all the villain stuff in a way, like because the biggest problem with Thunderball is that they do the whole like basically introduce the entire movie via the villain's plan and everything and then eventually but then not really explain it this time they get pretty much out in the open like this is kind of what's going on uh, at least you know enough but it also had an air of mystery to it yeah. and then also at the same time and again and I said this many times you don't really care what the actual plot machinations are of a Bond movie exactly. you just want to see what, yeah, what, what Bond does what, about it that's what I that's what I was saying earlier it's just like like, like those good more movies some even in some sense of those good Connery movies, it's basically like Bond's in this location. Mm-hmm. Let him do Bond stuff, and then eventually the plot will catch up with itself. Mm-hmm. And this movie is a really good example of that. Oh, speaking of the bad guys, um, it is funny that yes, Max von Sydow. It's still one of those cases where they don't really do anything yeah. with uh with uh, Blofeld, but to me, this is at least it's operating. It's. It's operating on the level it should in the sense of like at least it's it's a positioning Blofeld in the position that I think he should be in. Yeah. Where he's not the big bad guy, where he's just he should always have been like the guy in the shadows. Yeah. Like well, like because that's what works so well in From Russia with Love. Yeah. And that's still to me that From Russia with Love Blofeld is the best Blofeld. Yeah. Because it is like like what Blofeld is is that he's the mysterious leader of this organization that sends out all of his very smart henchmen and very smart underlings and his number ones and his number 12s to do his dirty work. Meanwhile, he's the one that's kind of really manipulating everything. And then eventually, like, if you lead up to that, because that's also what those Bond movies had an issue with, is that they don't really have a lead up to the moment of, like, here's our finally our confrontation with the big bad and you capture him and that should be the end of it. Mm-hmm. But no, there's just kind of... 
that Blofeld characters just kept getting reinvented. But like this movie, you're you're right. They don't do anything with the character except give him the white cat, which by the way, was invented for the Eon movies, but I guess Eon didn't care enough to be like, that's a copyright infringement. Right, right. Like, oh, of course, Blofeld has a white cat. Yeah, that was never in the books. But you're very much right, where it's just like, he's just there to kind of set up, like, uh, we, we're going to steal the two nukes and hide them in two different places, and that's really all you need. Um, so... Um, like, I'm trying but to think of what it, what else in the movie, because I think we're just kind of in a position where we got to like, hop around. Yeah, in so the movie. basically, like... Again, similar to Thunderball, but I think also one of the things I liked is the shift is that, remember in Thunderball, they did the whole face swap thing. So basically they killed the original guy and then gave his face to like the, the, the Air Force pilot that helps him steal the nukes. Mm-hmm. In the original movie, like Fiona kills him and then they give his face to another henchman and yes. then he's the one who comes in. What they do in this movie is essentially like they take this Air Force pilot, Domino's brother, and they gave him the president's eye and basically promised him, like, listen, we'll give you all the money and cars you ever want, and we won't harm your sister. And it's a little bit more of an effective just means of getting to that plot line. And a lot less complication of just like, well, how does this all work? And mm. kind of that, you know, that kind of more putting it a sci-fi aspect. Right, right. It kind of drives home, again, that kind of groundedness, but not seriousness mm-hmm. where it's still ridiculous that they're giving him the president's eye copy of the president's eye and he's just going to sneak into the missile base and like replace the dummy nukes with real nukes and then you know specter will steal them right but it just does give a little bit more of that emotional edge to you know knowing that character a little bit so that when we get that emotional moment with domino later where she finds out her brother's actually dead and that you know largo has been lying to her it punches a little bit more than it did in in Thunderball. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I mean, if we're talking about comparison to Thunderball, like everything just operates oh, yeah. on a on a on yes. a far bigger level. All right, um, I got something. Yeah, to yeah. Talk yeah. About. Like, I, let's just is, talk about what we liked. Okay, so, um, Barbara Carrera is awesome in this movie. Yes, she's so she. Ha- what I what I think what really drives if there, me if to there her- was anything to be like this was. This movie is amazing. It's like it's one scene specifically with her, but it's like her overall. Because she, what she brings is that same sort of energy that Famke Jensen yep. brings to yep. to on a top. Mm-hmm. Or it's not that same exact, you know. Well, like, it's pretty similar because it, it's, it's not like, the exact yeah. same. It, they don't go all in on the sadomasochism aspect of the character, but it's that it's the same sort of joyful, evil energy that really kind of brings it all home. Like she's just very like that scene I mentioned earlier in the prologue, where like she's just dancing down the steps. Yeah, is so beautiful in just how like deranged it is, mm-hmm. and like she has another dancing moment earlier at the in the Bahamas that really works well, and it's just like. You can just tell that I can see why Kirshner was invested in this character, invested in Barbara as an actress, because everything that she does, it just leads to that character kind of coming to life. Mm -hmm. And she plays off very well against Connery. They have a very good kind of that chemistry in the same way that I think Famke and Brosnan actually bring the best out of each other in that movie Mm -hmm. too. Well, she is a great Bond villain uh, henchman. Yes. Like that's it. It's like, and and there's like, there's this sense of like, I always like feel like, um, like, you know, it's weird because in a way like actresses don't necessarily always get roles. Like I, unless like you're like a comedic actress or like a Kate McKinnon or somebody like rarely like Think of it this way. 
every everybody seems more so willing to give like a guy a role where they can like go all out. Yeah, like everybody wants to see Nicolas Cage like turn it up to eleven, mm-hmm. or just like various other right. actors like like Tom Whereas, Hardy like, you're, be crazy. Because you're exactly right. Because like I'm also very much in that realm of like Kate McKinnon's performance in um you know Ghostbusters, uh, Ghostbusters yeah. is amazing. Or on an even more insane level, uh. Uma Thurman in Batman yes, and Robin 100%. is like 10 out of 10 performance. I don't care what anybody right. says because that's you're right. Actresses don't get that much of a chance. So fa- like Famke in, in Goldeneye and Uma Thurman in Batman and Robin, when they get that opportunity to just go all out, it's just so much fun. And Barbara has that same energy in this movie. Yeah, they they don't get the um they don't get the chance to like really ham it up and 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 then even one of the things that like, uh, when women ham it up, and I'm not saying like this is what women do, this is the roles that they're given. It's like it's still kind of like based in that like, you know, being very sexual and sexualized and things like that, even though those roles are great, like, you know, the Uma Thurman example. Um, and uh, and the Famke Jensen, uh, that's still a good example. But I felt like this one found that delicate balance of like not solely making it about like, like oh sexu- she's like a yeah. sexual deviant, right. even though like there are some great and we'll get to what the big uh, moment is. Yeah. There are some good moments about that, but they make it that she's just kind of like this evil, playful. Uh, this henchman who's just out to like you know ultimately kill and have her way and be the best like it, it's like and it's it's great and she's yeah. she's amazing and in the just, movie again there's so much like her first interaction with Connery where she's like skiing like on the on the water yes and then she just like basically skis up to him while he's at a bar and they just have this great little interaction oh my god by the way she's like she she skis up to him and then he's like um. Uh, she's like, oh man, I, I seem to have gotten you all wet. And he's like, yes, but my martini's still dry. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. yeah. Like, it's just like... It's just, that type of, of that just, type of humor that not, really that's works. That's not even like, like a big funny joke. It's just like, again, like, that's... Like, if and you want to you convince me that Bond is like this charming motherfucker, like, that's those the are the of types scene. of lines Because again, them. it's also Connery, again, with the comedic timing, just sells that joke. Oh, so good. But there's a great moment where, you know, like, they're on the boat and they have their little scene and then, like, she leads him to the sharks, which is great. And mm-hmm. she, thinks, she thinks she's definitely killed him, but then he sees her... I got so before we get more to her character, I gotta go with this great kind of plant and payoff in two senses. Yes. So Bond first gets to the Bahamas, and starts flirting with a woman. Starts flirting with a woman, like like what like what are you hoping to catch? And it's like something big, and you know, you uh, know with brown eyes brown or something eyes, like yeah. that. Yeah. And he's like, hmm, well, you know, you know, it's like why leave why leave the dock? Why leave said, the dock yeah. and all this sort of stuff? But, but again, he, but right, sorry said, to interrupt, but it's like once again. Real quick, great example of really good flirting, yeah. like fun flirting. Very natural. Yes. Go ahead. So basically, and then Bonds, you know, Bonds gets interrupted by Rowan Atkinson. Um, also, great. I, I great little great scene. Great little yeah. scene. Because okay, again, we're gonna go. I'm I'm gonna go back. <laughs> oh, this movie's so good. Because I want to I want to talk about this since we're here. So Rowan Atkinson is playing like a you know British Foreign Office Minister. Basically, like he's like the representative of Britain for the Bahamas area, and. <laughs> It's just, again, just great little humor because he's like running across the plaza. He's like, Mr. Bond, Mr. Bond. And he's like, oh, I know this is like a big assignment. So I took the liberty of uh, being like sneaky and, and not making sure nobody followed yeah, me. Yeah. And then Bond's like, so that's why you shouted my name in, 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 in a very crowded marketplace. And Roman Cass is like, oh. 
oh dear yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just so new at this I'm so, he's about to cry and it's just it's just so funny yeah. it's just so funny so anyways yeah so we, and, and they he, don't then they don't overdo that character either in, yeah. in the movie they yeah. just like kind of like pepper him out through right. comic relief yeah mm-hmm. yeah um so basically like because of Rowan atkinson's interruption he tells like the the fishing woman i'll, I'll catch you later yeah cut to him escaping the sharks and he sees like this hook, he like a fishing hook up in the you know up above him. So he like latches himself to it. It's the woman in the fishing boat, and she starts like, "Oh, I got something big. I got reeling in." He Connery pops up. She's like, "It's you," and he's like, "Well, I said I'd catch you later." <laughs> yeah, or no, she's like, like I, "It's like I said you'd catch me later," or yeah. something like that. Uh, but but and that like, yes. so yeah, but that also leads to another play- payoff uh-huh. because basically you know because you know they're having this yeah they're having for time they're flirting. Fiona sees that Bond is alive with this woman. So Fiona like goes up, she's like sneaks into Bond's hotel room and he pl- she plants a bomb there and then we cut to the sex scene between Bond and the fishing woman. And Ron Atkinson calls, he's like I've been trying to track you track you Bond all day, Bond. And you know Bond's like, you know, trying to get off the phone cuz he's having a sexy time when mm-hmm. but all of a sudden a you know, we, we see the big exp- you know, you know, F- uh, Fatima like hits her thing and there's a big explosion. And then we cut to Bond and the woman like looking over off the window, and it's like the explosions across the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, what, what? What's going on? He's like, well, it just means you made the right decision. What decision? Your place or mine? And then they start <laughs> going back to it. It's like that's also a plant and payoff to the whole you know kind of running gag that was early in the movie of your place or my place. It right, was, it's right. just it feels really like good. it feels like a clever script. But going back to Barbara. I just think that there are so many just little bitty moments, like even just again her dancing. That's just so excited to possibly kill Bond, and of course, then we get to their big chase, or or, or the running gag of like her, like uh, remembering they're in the crowd and she's always like moving people to the side. Yes. I, I don't know why. I yeah, thought that was funny. Like, I thought oh, that was well, great. we'll talk about that in a little bit. But then we get to their big big chase. So yeah. Bond like comes back to his like place because eventually they go to uh, like the French Mediterranean. Uh, to, to go after like Largo, who Bond, who Largo is this big kind of charity person who Bond thinks is involved, but everybody's like kind of like you're crazy because Largo's completely clean. Uh, but events Largo is working with Fatima and might have a secret sexual relationship with her. That's kind of kind of implied throughout the movie. But eventually, Bond finds that like his like liaison to like you know this this kind of world. Like the girl that kind of is like kind of playing both sides for him is dead, and he catches Fatima like driving mm-hmm. away. Yeah, and Bond goes off in his Q motorcycle um, and chases after her. And mm-hmm. this is really fun chasing. And it, you know, it is really fun because chase scenes in movies, chase scenes and shootouts are what people. They are for me what people normally complain about the third act of Marvel movies are for other people. Like Where they're inter- like kind of always. Yeah, it's like I, I I'm. You've seen enough. I feel that the way people feel about that, I feel that towards chase scenes and shootouts. Like I'm usually just like, all right, I get it. Like it's like they're like they're going down roads in this one. This I thought was like really fun. I thought it was just long enough. I thought that there were moments of like really clever creativity that you made you go like, yeah, Bond. Like you know when he's like he gets like trapped in like the truck and then like he drives off of the truck bed and everything. Like I just thought all that stuff was like really right. oh, well yeah, done. Yeah, because they, they 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 catch him in a tunnel and they're gonna make him go in like a truck and the and the back of the truck's coming up, but then he turns around and like jumps off the back of the truck as a rampway. Mm-hmm. Works really well. But eventually, like, kind of him and, you know, Fatima basically has him dead to rights. Yeah. She has, like, a gun to him. He's crashed the motorcycle. Like, he's crashed the motorcycle. He has, like, no other options. 
And this is a scene where I don't think our audience is ready for. Yeah. If you haven't seen this movie, it's you. Do you want to describe it or so? I? Basically, what happens is that she has Bond uh, at gunpoint. Bond's Bond is finished. Yeah, ultimately. he's got no gun. He's dead. He's basically yeah. dead to rights. Also, real quick, uh, we have established in a gadget scene that Bond has essentially an exploding harpoon pen. Yeah, that's all you need to know. Um, so. So as uh, she's about to kill him, she's like having her villain moment, and her villain moment is basically her just patting herself on the back, and it eventually leads to it's like, and I was the greatest lover you've ever had. It's like, like right, I'm, I'm gonna finally kill James Bond, 007. Yeah, I'm gonna like, I am, you know, I'm not gonna... only am I gonna kill him, but I was also the best woman he's ever been with. Like she's just having a ball, like yeah. with it. like this is the best day, and then like Bond is like kind of toying with her. Saying like, oh, like he's like, you know, making jokes like, well, there was this one woman in Philadelphia, like, which I'm like, good shout out to Philadelphia, by the way. Um, but um, but and then she's like, what? No, what are you talking about? I was the best you've ever been with. And then like he's like, okay, and he's trying to like bide some time. He's like, he's like, no, it's like I, I'll write about you, and and I was going to write about you in my memoirs as like the best woman I've ever been with. Yeah. Proceeds a scene where she gives where, him a yeah. piece of paper. Yeah. Where I only can assume that she is forcing him. I'm not kidding. This is what happens in the movie. She forces him to write a written document signed by him to prove <laughs> that he admitted that she like, was the best she's that like, he's ever been with. Like, like uh, Fatima Blush is the best woman yes. I ever. Like, it is like she's very flowery language, and it's like signed James Bond. 007 yes, she's ma- and he's about to start writing it and then bond's like well I'm so, oh i'm just i just remembered uh the you know we're not allowed to give out endorsements in the double o division and then she freaks out and then he proceeds to press his pen she gets shot in the stomach with the pen and then bond's like uh-oh and then because well, it's like because like, it feels like like because early in the movie when when q gives him the weapon it's like oh we're still working on it we're, we're, we're kind of going out the glitches and stuff like that and yeah. it seems like it's a glitch where like it like it pierces her, but it doesn't like hurt. It's like, a pretty badass moment for her. Yeah, she's, like she like she's like huh, like you know, kind of the thing where like my dad is like, oh wait, no, and it's like ha ha, like, and then failed. she explodes. <laughs> yes. So basically, then the pen like does a delayed reaction, and boom, she erupts into like a fiery a flame of nothing. Yeah, and all is left is her shoes, which again has been like kind of her establishing shot for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful moment, and then Bond, of course, says, like, hmm, not working correctly, right? Hmm. I uh, I was stunned that this scene was in the movie. Yeah. When, when, I, when she, like, gave him the piece of paper to, like, write, a, a, like, a signed piece of document, I was like, this movie is amazing. And I loved uh, I loved every minute of it. So, like, I, I just thought that was, yeah. it was it overall was, great character. Yeah, and, and again, it's just like, I think it is, it's just, yeah, it was just some of the more fun in the movie. By the way, just to go back real quick, I did like the Bond and like, Q sing yeah. uh, in this movie. Most now, of, was that Q? Because they kept on calling him a different name. Yes, it was one of those things where, again, kind of the... Was that the rights? Yeah, or, it was okay. like, all things considered, that character is supposed to be Q. But sure, I think yeah. there was a thing where just to be safe with it, because that was one of the things where they they could use like money, plenty, and bond and stuff like that. But Q, I guess, had a little bit more legal tangle, so they call mm-hmm. him like Ag- Ag- Agnon or something mm-hmm. like that. But I just thought like that scene was very effective in in kind of setting up the older Bond narrative because it's just basically like oh like now 
there's not much need for the Q division and the budget's been slashed and you know they they well, only they only have so much for the gadgets and things aren't finished yet and I think it was and also it kind of does that thing that I like with kind of what they do with Q and Dalton in um the Living Daylights or sorry uh, License to Kill where they give a little bit more of that history between the characters and a little more of that friendship and it, it feels very natural. Well, and this will lead into another thing where. I liked, uh, and I t- mentioned this about like the how they did like the whole like oh like Bond you're getting a little bit older and like time has passed and everything. But what I liked about this is that, and and I think there is a good story you can tell in that. Yeah. But like so far, like they've tried and they didn't really commit to it. But in the meantime, this is a movie that knows what it is, and they bring that up in like some very cl- various clever ways, and it doesn't make this like whole big deconstructionist deal out of it. It's just an aspect of the character. It's the right. set- up just, of this movie and they found like little clever ways and one of the clever ways that they did it is like they literally have a scene where bond instead of poker has to play a video game this with was the main okay. villain so there were two scenes in this movie that i knew about that i knew i wanted to know your thoughts on yes. one was the video game scene the other was the horse jump those were the yeah. two scenes i needed to know so yeah let's talk about the video game scene so Basically, yeah. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, Bond is under the belief, based on kind of evidence he got at the health facility, that uh, Maximilian Largo, uh, which in the original Thunderball is Emilio Largo, Maximilian Largo, uh, who is this very famous charitable billionaire who basically like runs all these charity events and is like the greatest guy in the world, is somehow connected. And everybody kind of like, Felix thinks he's crazy. Um, you know, you know, his office thinks he's crazy that like he would even think this, but this is, this is his hunch. This is where he goes. Um, so eventually, uh, he eventually goes to, uh, the French Mediterranean where Largo is holding a charity event. And basically the charity event is that he's holding it at a casino and all the people, money that the casino makes that night is going to go to this children's charity. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, basically, at one point, we enter this room with a bunch of, you know, arcade cabinets. As you got, like, you know, Pac-Man and everything in there. Mm-hmm. But eventually, like, Largo catches Bond with uh, Domino. And, you know, he's basically like, hmm, I can't, I can't let this slide. So, basically, he introduces him to his newest game, Domination. Mm-hmm. Which is this, basically, this game of world domination. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically to give like a sense of what it is. You you hang on to like two joysticks, and a holographic world appears in front of you, and it and it basically kind of looks like this. You just gotta shoot the parts of the world, and right? You like gain so the more it selects points. a country. Yeah. It, each country is worth so much money, and then like you basically like fight for positions in the country. You you shoot little little squares, and whoever has the most squares at the end of the game wins. But the more you lose the more that the machine shocks you. Yeah, and that's the main yeah. the main aspect of the Now, game. it was funny that you wanted to hear what my thoughts about it were. And I thought it was cute when they first did it. And I was all on board with them like doing a different thing with like the video game thing. And one of the reasons I liked it is because it was an unspoken way of kind of addressing the new kind of like, oh, like Bond's a little bit older, so he doesn't play like the the card games with the villain. He plays like a video game. And yeah. I and I thought that was like it was a it's definitely like a little kooky, but like I liked it. But I was like, okay, and then I'm like, all right, maybe we can like go in and move in and out of this scene. But I gotta admit, the more that they stuck with it, I got more and more invested as it went on. So they did the one and they did the two, and I was like, okay, the two, like after two, it's gonna be done. And Bond, then, Bond loses both games. Yeah, but then when he loses the game, then it's like, 
um, or because one is like, oh, like he doesn't know how it works, and then the first official game, and then he loses that, yeah. and then he loses another one. So I'm like, but the more and more it went on, I was like, oh my god, like I'm, I'm like in, I'm, I'm invested. Like I wanted, like, is he gonna work? And then at the end, Bond's like. It's like, all right, like one more game. How about the world? And then like they they have to play for in the video game for the sake of the world. And then they're like, and I forget what the title card was it, but when the video game pops up, it's like, oh, like Target Japan or Target Europe yeah. or something like this. And then this one was like uh, something like Target Total World Domination. And then it was just, and I know it's it sounds goofy and it is goofy. I acknowledge that. I still stand by it. It's awesome because basically it's the shorthand way of like being like, yeah, Bond is like battling for the fate of the world. Yeah. And it's like so goofy and I love it. Yeah. So I was all also like the third game, like Bond gets all the way up to like 90% like shocked and it's like basically almost passes out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like Largo is like, I invented this game. I've never lost and eventually he does lose. Mm -hmm. And, And of course that's the biggest slight. If someone who never loses, loses. They're out for you now, man. Yeah, but uh, it was like it was like a fun, goofy way of a new way of like also like um go, coming through in that theme of like Bond. Not really even a theme. It's just like that aspect of like oh, Bond's a little bit older, and it's like that one thing because I feel like with some of these movies. And I find that this is actually another thing with like franchise movies now. Sometimes is like there's there's kind of this. I know I keep on plugging like different different movies with it, but I won't spoil it. Like I had this thought, like I saw Toy Story four recently, yeah. and I and that movie without giving anything away, there is like this thought that they want to make these movies count so much that they have to make like this huge big decision by the end of it, or right. like there's yeah. this huge big like this is a landmark. It has to be point like of, the emotional, like the deep emotional moment. Yeah, but even just like in general, well, like there and, has and, to like, be. You're right. It affects the story in some way. Sure. Whereas, like, I want to kind of just, like, this is, like, an example of, like, can a movie just be, like, this is just, like, the mission? There's no, like, big thematic deconstructionist point. There's no, like, point that the movie is trying to make. But you can, like, have little moments, like, the whole video game thing, just to kind of, like, set up and just to do something with the story of, like, oh, yeah, Bond's in a slightly new world. I mean, like, why else do all these movies where if it's, like, why put Bond in a different, like, time period if you're not going to do that? Like, why not? put video games in it somehow so like you know and then and we've seen like bond ultimately does do that but even though they've kind of got stuck in the whole like oh technology is evil um but um but that is like an aspect of this movie i like that it it played with those little elements without trying to make this big thematic point about it um some uh i'm trying to think of like i mean ultimately like that really like in general covers like a lot of things i mean you know we have kim basinger who i thought was like fine yeah, in, she in is the good. movie yeah and our, what do you thought of largo um i thought he was i thought he was good um i thought he worked for what the movie yes, was i, I think that's don't perfect. think it's like the again still not like kind of on that top of the all-time bond villains list but like you know for a different interpretation of what Largo is, because mm-hmm. in, in again in Thunderball, Largo is purely just a pure evil main henchman of of Spectre with an eye patch. Yeah, and I think again he's one of the few things in that Thunderball movie that kind of brings it together. It's kind of just his iconicness. Well, of one thing his I look, thought, but like yeah, but he basically like he he doesn't overstay his welcome either, and I think he does just enough to give him like that edge of like you kind of you can just tell he's kind of someone you should dislike. That's true. I think that I liked him in the second half of the movie, and I think one of my issues, my only issue was from a narrative point of view where I don't think he really even became the th- big bad until like really midway through the movie. Yeah, because like, it I, is kind of like again, it's kind of the investigation of like well. 
Bond is kind of trying to prove it, but like you get don't get the sense of who the man is until it's made very clear that yes, he is the right. villain of the Because theater. then when he started doing stuff, like there was like this moment where you know Kim Basinger is like, "You're crazy," and he's like, "Probably." <laughs> And I liked all that kind of stuff. I just like I do feel like if he was just kind of like had if he had made more of a big splash towards the beginning of the movie and maintained like a a big thing throughout, kind of like because if you remember like you remember somebody like Goldfinger, like you know he is kind of like at least more memorable yes. throughout the movie as like the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and because like in the beginning of this movie, I'm like, wait a minute, are we following? Blofeld? Are we following this guy? And that, like, that, that right, was something I got a little really, lost in. It's like again, it's another one of those things where like Fatima Blush is really like that villain that you're following. And, sure, yeah, and, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think like there's almost that sense of you kind of you know she is like a perfect henchman, but like she's the one you're really kind of bonds up against. Mm-hmm. And then when she dies, it just kind of transfers to to Largo. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just like you—you you do enough, I think, where it's a little bit of fun with that their interactions. But speaking of Kim Basinger, real quick, I did like the like I and again, I thought they tastefully handled oh the masseuse uh, the masseuse scene. But yeah, I thought they tastefully handled the whole like relationship and everything. I thought that was great. But the masseuse thing, I thought was like fun because well, that was a scene that I think in the older Bond movies would have gone terribly wrong. Yes. And I thought they they got just up to the edge of it in this movie, but I think that they got away with right. it. Yeah, it's very close. Like, like you could, you can really see where the scene could have shifted to yeah. something mm-hmm. a lot worse. Because basically, Bond is trying to get information on Largo, and he basically follows Domino into a um, massage or like spa area. And he, there's also the moments like, "Do you serve men here?" It's like, "Yeah, we serve all kind of men." Just uh, what do you have in mind? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, he kind of sneaks around. He gets inside, and and Domino's basically like getting ready for massage, and he pretends to be. The, masha- the masseuse, so that he can get information. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a couple things about it. One is that they do show him being very careful initially of like what he's doing. Sure, like they yes. don't because yes. again, you're right. Like that, if it was like Goldfinger Bond or like Thunderball Bond, he would have immediately like grabbed her ass or something. Like, oh no, this is all part of the. Uh, Part of the thing, I'm just massaging your ass. Yeah, um, yeah, because there's the moment basi- where she's like, "Can you go? Can you go lower?" And then even he has that look on his face. He's like, "Uh, I, I guess I got myself in this situation. Now yeah. I got to do." It. Like he kind of has right, that and thought. it's like the yeah. discussion is fun. It's like it just does it right. You're right. It does does it tastefully enough. Yeah, and um, and, and it's like and. You're right. I, I just I thought that they handled yeah, that I think, scene very well. I think well. the Domino and, and Bond relationship is is again good. Nothing like really spectacular for me in terms of that but i do think that for all of her nervousness i think Bassinger gives basinger whatever we want to call her mm-hmm. uh gives a, a a nice performance uh, i do th- i do think that moment when they're dancing because bond when bond wins the game of domination he basically like he's supposed to win like thirty seven thousand dollars or three hundred something dollars three hundred something thousand dollars and mm-hmm. then largo's gonna write in the check he's like i'll i'll wipe it all away for one dance with domino right and then right. during the dance with domino bond reveals that uh, oh, her, her brother's actually dead, and, and Margot's responsible. And I do like that moment where she's like kind of trying to keep it in while they're mm-hmm. doing the dance. And um, I do think that she kind of sells that aspect of it a lot, especially towards the end of the movie right. when kind of that stuff happens. Um, I think there's there's a lot of just more fun moments that just to mention, like Bond has to Bond's not on the guest list for the casino because mm. he tried to do it with like oh he tried yes, to figure yes out how to do this it. Yeah, yeah he tried to figure out how to do it when he was massu- massaging domino but there's basically like, oh it's an exclusive list you know only the best of the best get in 
And so Bond gets up there, and the security guard in front is like, "Hey, man, you need a you need an invitation." And Bond basically like you know puts up a you know puts up a gun or whatever. He's like, "Listen, man, like I'm getting in here no matter what." He puts him in a closet, and like hands him like this solid you know silver brick basically. And he's like, "Listen, if you make one move, this will explode, and you'll mm-hmm. you'll you'll basically be obliterated." So if you if you understand, nod very slowly. And the guy's like, "Oh yeah, uh-huh, yeah." And yeah. basically like he seemingly like activates it. And he's like, well, take care, buddy. And I instantly knew where this was going. Mm-hmm. But it's still so entertaining. So at the end of all this, after he, like, he has the dance with Domino and like the awkward interactions with, with Largo, mm-hmm. and he's leaving the event, Bond goes back to the guy. He's like, thank you very much. Have a nice night. And he like comes out, and the actual the silver brick, he was actually just his cigarette holder. Mm-hmm. And But it was like, the thing is, again, you knew exactly where that joke was going. Where it's like, it's not actually like this, this bomb device, especially since we didn't see it in the gadget scene. Yeah. But it just still works so well because of just the comedic timing of Connery. An- another cute moment that I did like uh, was, um, um, and then actually this may segue into the next bit, because I just like, before we kind of like wrap up, I want to just talk about like some little nitpicks I had. Um, but one, one little cute moment I did like that I, again, I felt like that they were like really like utilizing like the tropes and getting through some of the trappings of a Bond movie is like, they kind of really organically made me believe in like the villain tells him his plan yeah kind of. So like he, but he has Bond captured in a pretty awesome looking kind of like, uh, like a castle in Africa. It's got like, like, I just thought this set was cool with like all the vultures and like just all right. like the skeletons like I said, and stuff. When you, have yeah. the, when you have the entire production design team of Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. Yeah, oh, like. God, it showed in that scene. But then he's, like, uh, saying, like, uh, he's like, Bond, you know, you are a pretty good secret agent. He's like, oh, thank you. And he's like, yeah, it's like, well, it's like, uh, you know, now that I'm about to die, can you, like, at least tell me where the bombs are? And he's like, dude, I'm not going to tell you that. And he's like, oh, okay, just one. He's like, all right, I'll tell you one. One's under, like, the president's uh, chair in, in Washington. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, what What else? He's like, no, that's, no, that's no, all he's like, no, no, he's like, no, because I think that's actually a good moment from Largo. And basically, like, well, what about the other one? Largo's just like, yeah, exactly. But it was a and, believable and you, way. And then you basically like, find out right after yeah. that that Bond, uh, the other Bond's there. Um, uh, one other thing I want to mention before we get mm-hmm. to like the end uh, is that Largo basically has a dance studio in his boat. And yes. I did like the first moment with it is kind of weird because like he's in this, like, because again, it's we little, don't really know what he's doing. Because he's like, in this yeah. little room of like all these computers and maybe he's communicating with someone. Then he turns on some music and he's like, oh, that's interesting. And then the wall opens and he's basically, there's this dance studio, like this full on dance studio. Mm-hmm. And you see Kim Bassinger with like a dance instructor and then the dance instructor is like holding it up to the mirror or the window, and he's basically like, "Oh, like look, it's her legs." And then you you reverse, and it's a, uh, is well, what's a one way mirror? Right, so right, right. so they see a mirror in the room, but then on the other side is that, and it, it leads to another nice moment later where Bond sneaks back on the boat, which is mm, which is another mm-hmm. great moment because Bond is invited. Like Argo's like, "Oh, if you if you uh, if you're around tomorrow, because he he's going to send Fatima out to kill him. But if you're around tomorrow, I want you to uh, join me on my boat for lunch." And so Bond like survives from you know kills Fatima and all that sort of stuff and also sneaks away on a bike with 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 Felix which I thought was a very funny moment mm-hmm. uh but I like Felix in this movie I I thought like it was just yeah, nice mean, like, to have him there and yeah it's just like again it's around nothing yeah. they don't do too much with the character but like no I will agree with I will agree though with Connery that like I did like like and remember this Felix like I thought there were, it was a nice, tasteful way of like having like oh an American, it, just a whole different vibe as yeah. opposed to just like oh another white secret agent yeah. guy. Like so, I thought that was really good. But then like 
Connery is like, okay, well, the nuke has to be on the boat, or maybe there's some clue the nuke's on the boat. So he sneaks in, he swims in, mm-hmm. and then basically, like, he, like, pops up in the boat, and then there's a guy there's like, oh, Mr. Largo's waiting for you. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, great. And he gives him, like, a robe and everything. It's great. So then what we do, we get to the end of the movie. So they do get captured. Uh, it, like, uh, Largo is enraged because Bond uses the one-way mirror in the dance studio to kiss um, Domino, and basically was like, I need you to pretend that you like this. One, because... We need to provoke a reaction from Largo, and two, because I, I do actually kind of like you, that sort of thing. They See, kiss. just moments like that even had me being like, oh, Bond, yeah. oh, James. Like, yeah. even I was kind of like, yeah. oh, So, so Largo awesome. basically goes crazy, gets really upset, and basically takes Bond and uh, Domino to his castle in North Africa, mm-hmm. where, where Bond, Bond, but Bond has an opportunity to, to message, like, MI6 about it. That lets us where they're going. Bond's captured. Largo decides to sell Domino to these like Arab terrorists, essentially. Yeah, like these warlords. Can I? I, I just because I don't want to come back to this point. This was the only thing I didn't love in the movie. Um, only because it was just the movie up until then is very like whimsical spy fantasy. Yeah, and this was like the one area where I'm like, that's a little too real world. Yeah. Like that's a little too like where it's like. Like, you know, they're propping up because I, I was kind of hoping they weren't going to do it. I thought they were going to do like a, they tie her up to like the thing and then like they were going to like let loose some like tigers or something like that, which I mean, but no, but it's like, oh, but yeah. then when you have yeah. it like, oh, like, you know, these guys like clawing at her, that was like the only thing where I was like, I don't know if I love that. Now, I will say that they don't belabor that point too much. They yeah. kind of get in and out of it. So I'm not that right. upset about it. But that was, I, I didn't love that. That was mm-hmm. like really. That and up until then, that that was the only thing in the movie. Yeah. Like I just did not love. Yeah. So so yeah, but they mm-hmm. basically escape, and this is where the horse jump comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, where yes, the horse does jump. Like I don't think the horse fully jumped off that castle. No, no, it couldn't. I, I thought that was very weird. And I know they gave us the obligatory shot of the horse swimming, so you knew that. Well, because that was the thing. Because we were like for a while, like because first of all, Bond just loses his shirt out of nowhere. That was funny. That and was Bond, really funny. Bond, like you, you see Bond come up. He's like, "What happened to his shirt?" And then we're all like, what happened to the horse? Like, the horse can't be dead. Like, they can't do that. But then they, yes, they see the horse swimming away. Even though I'm sure that horse is going to have a very tough time getting back. I don't think that horse ultimately survives. No, I know. I don't think that horse ultimately survives. So, basically, this all leads to they get rescued by MI6, who has stormed the castle. There's also a really great moment where... Like Bond throws a guy out a out a window because like the guy is like investigating like he sees the bars being broken on the window and he's yeah. like oh what happened what happened to the guy in here and then Bond's like on the other side hanging down and throws him out mm-hmm. but basically they they get on a submarine uh, and they're basically like oh well you know then Domino's necklace leads him to where they're actually gonna hide this other nuke and blow it up because I guess the plan is that they're gonna blow it up in this one area that's gonna disrupt all these oil tankers and oil you know rigs and basically blow up and then that kind of leads to just the the last kind of little bit of the movie yeah uh which was still fun again like they kind of led into a not memorable shootout but only be but but then they kind of like get in and out of that so i didn't really care my my thing is like this is this is like the one part of the movie that i like the ending just kind of it it's it's not not, the strongest out of all the things yeah bad i agree it's one of those things where it's not bad but it is the one thing that kind of drags it down where just it it's really because I actually disagree. Where I think that, yeah, I get the the real world thing, but I still think that kind of escape from the castle is still fun enough with the horse and going up steps and stuff, and just mm-hmm. kind of still being crazy. Whereas I felt like that last fight, and like even like the last little underwater bit, um, even though I appreciated that, even in this version, Domino still gets the kill, which mm-hmm. I liked. 
Um, it just, just, it just didn't feel like it had that same energy. It just didn't feel like it was kind of as entertaining as the rest of the movie. And that's really like the, the ending kind of falling flat. Like that part of the ending, the last action scene mm. falling flat, mm. is really kind of what puts it down a little bit for me. I would not disagree. I don't think it didn't fall flat for me. It still all works. I wouldn't. I, I would say. I, I, I don't that think. Like I said, not, I don't think it's bad. I just mm-hmm. think it just doesn't entertain me as much as the rest of the movie does. And I think the rest of the movie is so entertaining, so silly, so stupid in a good way mm-hmm. that just I needed a little bit more of that in that last little bit. You know, your opinion is very valid. This is like again, this is just where we a little different mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. But then we get to the very end. Where Bond and Domino are hanging out in their little new abode, and someone's sneaking in, and who could it be? It, it, I knew that was. Oh no! Rowan of course, at, yeah. yeah There's like no right up, away. and then Rowan. Uh, Rowan's basically like, it's M, and like he's begging you to come back. The the fate of the world is at stake, and Bond's like, oh. no, no, no. What they say is like Bond, the the fate is something like the. The, the security, the like, security of the modern world is nothing without James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm like, yes, that's well, awesome. So then Bond's like, I'm never going back, and then he's like, you know, Kim's like, uh, never, and Bond's like, never, and winks at the camera. Yeah. So that was not Connery's first choice for the ending. Mm-hmm. Connery had a different pitch for the ending. So the original pitch for the ending that Connery had was that it was going to be a similar idea where him and Domino are together. They're walking through the Bahamian you know, marketplace from the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. and they bump into somebody. And Bond, or, uh, Bond and Domino kind of do a double take but walk off, and the camera pans up to this man that they bumped into, mm-hmm. and it's Roger Moore. Oh, And Roger Moore funny. was going to look in the camera and say, Never say never again. Freeze frame. End of the movie. Uh, okay, you got me up until that last line. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I was like, oh, that would have been cool, and like, oh, maybe not. Well, because uh. basically the idea, Connery and Moore were friends, mostly based on the Bond connection. Mm-hmm. That like again, even though Connery had his issues with Eon and kind of that whole deal, you know, with with you only the twice he did come back to that. Uh, he knew that you know Moore was stepping into big shoes and and did reach out to him early on in his Bond tenure, and they became good friends. And Moore. You know, Moore was a nice guy. Like, and that's the, really the case of Moore thought that this would be, like, Connery thought this would be a very fun ending for the audience. Mm-hmm. Moore thought that this would be, like, just a cool way to, like, kind of ease a tent. Like, he, he just felt like it would be, like, a way to just, like, let's just do this thing. Like, we know they're making this movie. Let's just have fun with them because they're, you know, they're just going to make it. Right. Uh, but they, they couldn't, like, Connery just couldn't get it past Kirshner and, and the legal team that they thought that it was going to be too hard to do. So they went mm-hmm. with this ending instead. But it would have been cool to see. Sure. Uh, but yeah, super entertaining stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think it's, there's a lot of it where I'm going to discuss in the aftermath, but the legacy of this movie is very intriguing to me after having watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this to me is a, this is the perfect Bond movie for me. I, I like really, and it was funny because like, it was one of those movies where the little nitpicks and things that I didn't love about it, which are not many at all. I wouldn't even say it's a handful of things. Uh, they just stood out to me more so only because like, like that thing with like the, the warlord stood out to me because I really was having no issues with the movie up until that point. Um, so I, I really don't have any big problems with it. I think the only other little pacing issue I would say is like, and this is just a general movie thing is like, I usually do have a bit of an issue where if a movie feels like it's like, 
going down and then like oh you realize like oh there's like slightly more movie and then that's kind of like what like the third act feels a little bit right and i think that leads to ultimately i don't think i i would agree that if i had to pick out of the acts the third act is probably the least well put together but it still all works for me yeah but ultimately like i said to to wrap up my feelings on it i think bond uh connery's bond is like my favorite i think he's amazing in in this part in the movie i think he's great i think all the aspects that you want out of bond uh out of a bond movie work 100 percent. and i think just overall it makes for a thoroughly entertaining movie and easily one of my favorite bond films all right i think that's a solid way to get into the aftermath mm-hmm. so this was released the same year as uh octopussy mm-hmm and there was a lot of chatter about what movie would win at the box office. Now, the the box office mojo experts of its era um, all predicted that Never Say Never Again was going to come out on top. They thought that Never Say Never Again had Connery returning, which was going to be a big angle. They all thought that Never Say Never Again had the bigger marketing push. And they basically just felt like it would have also the advantage of coming out after Octopussy and that if Octopussy was not, you know, a great movie or did not hit with audiences that they might respond to uh, Never Say Never Again. So the movie does come out four months after Octopussy um, in uh, October of 1983. Mm-hmm. And initially the initial numbers are pretty high, actually kind of beat some uh, in New York and like some American cities, especially that it outgrosses opening weekend of Octopussy, uh, but ultimately does gross less. Octopussy gets 187 million worldwide. Never say never again. 60, 160 million. Uh, so again, about 17 million under. So both films are basically very, both very successful and. To the extent that it was one of the most uh, expensive independent movies ever made, it also would go down as one of the most profitable independent movies ever made, even though it would be released by Warner Brothers. So it still kind of had the push of a major studio. Mm -hmm. Um, The movie had a um, good set of reviews, uh, well-liked by audiences um, at the time, uh, time period. Probably actually a little bit more well-reviewed than Octopussy was. Um, and uh, Barbara Carrera actually was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress uh, for her role as Fatima Blush, which would make her the only Bond actress to have any Golden Globe nominations or Oscar nominations uh, for their acting performance in the Bond movie. Um, now, what I want to talk about, which I find very interesting, is the legacy of this movie. Because... Mm-hmm. What I find very fascinating... Just tell me if I have to say people are wrong or not. Well, here's here's what I'll say. Yeah. What it feels like this movie's legacy is, is people... How would I put this? It feels like people watch this movie without watching this movie. Mm. Because... So you mean people have kind of like determined what like yes, this is? Yes, because... The, the the legacy of this movie has actually deteriorated because when you look at the initial reviews of the movie, they're all pretty good reviews. Mm-hmm. Like one of the initial, like the Daily Express said, one of the better Bonds, the film was superbly witty and entertaining, the dialogue is crisp and fight scene imaginative. And then it said Connery has lost none of his charm. Connery is back looking as hard, hardly a day older or thicker, still outclassing every uh, other opponent for the role. So basically like... At the time, people were like, oh, this is a pretty good Bond movie. But then over the course of history, 
it's kind of gotten lumped in with Casino Royale 67 in terms of, oh, the non-official Bond movies are, like, not great. And I'm, like, very stunned that people don't like this movie. But it's just, when I look at the reviews of why, like, the reflective reviews, people are just like, oh, yeah, they'll never see Never Again. It's, like, not good. Or, oh, it says, you know, it's, like, Connery's, this looks older. It's, like, hmm... Are you actually watching the movie or mm. are you just kind of playing into this narrative? Mm. And I actually feel like, so this is something I found out. And I, I might have said contradictory information beforehand in the previous episode when I didn't, you know, I just didn't know the, the legacy of this movie. But uh, MGM and Eon bought the rights to this movie uh, from Warner Brothers in 97. Back when... You know, there was all these other issues with the, the Sony issue that we talked about in the Casino Royale episode that eventually led to the Spider-Man trade. They bought both the rights from Sony. They bought the rights from Sony to Casino Royale, and they bought the rights from Warner Brothers to um, uh, Never Say Never Again. And what's very interesting about that is that while both movies eventually got DVD and Blu-ray releases... But while Casino Royale 67 is very easy to find, you can find it easily on Amazon or most, even most, um, you know, stores, retailers will have copies of it at some point or another. Never Say Never Again had a very brief Blu-ray window in the United States and in Britain and basically is very hard to find on official channels. Like well, for also but reasonably priced too. Like, like that's a it, big thing. Yeah, because like, you can easily buy the official American Blu-ray of this, but it's like going to be like, it's when I looked it up, it was like for $70, yeah, 70 to a hundred bucks. Yeah. So Mike, like for example, my copy of never, the copy I own of never say never again. Cause I was very like, I, whether I like the movie or not, I want to own every bond movie. That's mm-hmm. like kind of a cool thing to say. I own everyone. Yeah. My, I'm, co- I'm the same way with the Godzilla yeah. film. So my copy of never say never again is a Swedish Blu-ray copy that I got on eBay for $18 plus free shipping. Mm hmm. And that's the easiest way to grab the movie. It's just to buy a foreign copy on eBay and play it on your region free play PlayStation 4. And there's a part of me in the conspiracy realm that's just like that never say never again has never gotten that kind of push that like Casino Royale cuz Casino Royale 67 easily available and even like the bonus features on that one are very similar to this one but that one presents it as like it's this weird anomaly that's not really that great but kind of has that kind of weirdness that makes it stand out. Mm. Whereas, like, Never Say Never Again, I feel like, is a movie that deserves to be rediscovered, but it's just, like, it's not easy to come by. Mm. And I think that's very interesting. Um, But I I do feel like that... That that must play into its legacy a little bit. Because if it's not in regular circulation, it's easier just to, I I think, maintain on... Like, not to say, like, maybe a lot of these people um, are genuinely saying they're going back to this movie and they don't think there's anything yeah. special about it. They're wrong. But uh <laughs> but um but it ultimately but if it is a movie where it's not you know what this is very similar to and and I think and we've kind of mentioned this. It's very similar to the whole legacy of the Godzilla films mm-hmm. where it's like you know the whole when you really think about the legacy of those movies, what would American audiences really think of? Like they either like their whole history with it is like the '98 film, and then like knowing it's goofy monster movies. Yeah. So, and the reason I bring this up, not just so I can talk about Godzilla, it's just like if these movies aren't in regular availability and circulation with people, then they're just going to maintain, like there's not going to be any other thorough kind of like opinions on them. Yeah. No, and I agree. And I, I, like the thing is like you can find those positive reviews. Sure. 
But it's just like you just feel when you look around that the total legacy is just like people will just dismiss it because it's like not official and it's just kind sure. of, oh Connery came back and like you know years later and mm-hmm. like all the sort of and all all the sort of weird stuff just around Thunderball and the rights in general. So it's also that. and and I will say it's also hard because there is also no other. When you think about the legacy of all the memorable things in Bond movies, yeah. this movie has none of them. Yeah. Like, there's no, like, even, like, you know, Goldfinger has, like, some of the Goldfinger stuff. Even the more everybody knows right. Roger Moore. It's just all this and stuff. And even, like, yeah. the legacy of the stunts. Like, there are some good fight sequences, but it never has, like, those major, like, stunts or those crazy, those real crazy, like, action concepts that some of those Eon movie had. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a very solidly overall entertaining movie, and I think sometimes that can be harder for people to kind of like really pull out from it. Well, and also think about it this way: like the legacy of the Lazenby movie gets stuck in the oh yeah, that's the Lazenby movie for a long time yeah. before like again the modern Bond canon, and the modern Bond fandom considers that movie it's it's so decent. high. It's a pretty decent movie. Uh, it's like it's just in terms of the regular Bond canon, but it took a long time for people to. To, to stop thinking about it as a Lazenby movie and kind of think of it on its own. I do think that this movie is ripe for a rediscovery. Yes. I do think that this movie, within this era that we live in, mm-hmm. like you just need a, some live tweeting to go viral. And I well, feel definitely like this, in the in the in the in the in the era of film Twitter, we definitely live in a time where more people are likely to be like, hey, by the way, like this Bond movie is actually like a pretty good gem and yeah. like we all slept on it. Like yeah. so and guess what? I will be the champion of yeah. that. And I, I can't wait. You sh- you should do some tweets after we release this episode. Yeah, definitely. So just a brief before we wrap up, just a brief kind of what happened to everybody kind of on this film. Mm-hmm. So um McClory obviously was very happy with the success and again initial praise of this film and he had hoped that this would lead to a stronger film career for him but unfortunately he basically became known as the guy who had the Thunderball rights and made a pretty decent Bond movie. He never really got that opportunity to make his name in film. I mean again infamously he tried to do this again in 1997 where he was going to call the movie Warhead 2000 and possibly have Dalton in it and basically remake the movie again. Eon finally stepped in and basically said, you, you had your chance. We let you do it once. We're not going to let you do it again. He eventually dies in the mid-2000s, and his estate eventually sells the Thunderbolt rights to Bond. Uh, Jack Schwartzman learned a lot from this movie um, in terms of production, in terms of that, and Talia Films went on to be a pretty decently successful independent film studio in the, uh, in the 80s up until Schwartzman's death in 94, in which Talia takes over completely. And then, as I kind of hinted at before, Connery saw like his career kind of be revitalized in terms of being mm-hmm. a blockbuster yep. actor because yep. this movie was very successful. Connery was kind of doing a, his first major blockbuster in such a long time, and it's it's not long after this. I mean, the rest of the '80s is where really the Connery kind of pop culture fame returns because it's he's it's not long after this that he you know gets his Oscar for the Untouchable uh, the Untouchables it's not long after this that he's in the last crusade or just a couple years from him doing you know Hunt for Red October mm-hmm. you know there's the Connery kind of comes back into the the major you know acting fold for a long time and it's possibly you know most, most of it is because like he decided to take a chance and be a creative force on this movie and decided to get kind of back into blockbuster filmmaking yeah He's awesome in this movie. Yeah, I mean, he, he's really good. All right, one last thing before we get to the big wrap-up. Who is Harrison Ford? Oh, in this movie? Fuck. Um, hmm. Who is Harrison Ford in this movie? 
I mean, I want to say I, I feel like we made I made him the same guy in Thunderball where he was just like the head of the uh, the health of clinic. the health clinic. Feels like it's very natural. Yeah, but I also feel like he could be like a big wig at the at, you know he could be playing like a Galaga at the. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's the uh, he's the uh, owner of the arcade of the of the in the, in the yeah thing. like yeah. he he like he's the one who's renting them all the arcades and yeah. he's like you better be careful with that Pac Man that's an original Pac Man no no he he has all the high scores in all okay, the arcade there it is, games yeah. and then and then he's like uh, and then like Bond comes in and like gets a high score and he's like Arr. um I was gonna say he he was like he could have been like the head of the the captain of that submarine but it actually reminded me of a cute little moment where. You know, you have to show Bond is good at his job, and then he realized like that uh, the Russians had like a secret like device that he's like, you shouldn't know about that. He's like, oh, I well, I read about it and like the thing because he's like, I'm James Bond and I know things. Um, so that was really fun. Um, so cool. Uh, yeah, this was really good. I, I really liked. It. I think it's if it's worth checking out for you guys. Mm-hmm. And again, like this is not again really if you just want to rent it on like YouTube or Amazon or something. Really, it's not like a bad watch. It's you you will have a good time. And I will say, like, if you like James Bond, watch this movie. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I think it's, again, it's a movie ripe for rediscovery. Okay. Um, so uh, we are done. And wow, Nick, we are at the point where we have talked about every James Bond movie. James, I was going to say official James Bond movie, but I should say every movie where James Bond is officially in it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, where man, do we, where do, where, we, go where do we go from so, here? So. Uh, do we do we just wait and see what it is? I think maybe that may be the best. Like, no, or do I think we, do, I, I was, do you know exactly? What I we're do talking know about what here? we're doing. Oh, next yeah, month. yeah, you you do. Yeah, I do know what we're doing next month. So basically, in terms of general, yes, we're done with the bonds. So now every episode on the bond side of things is going to be bond related. We're going to look at other spy works. We're going to look at other things um, related to Ian Fleming. We're going to look at other things related to Cubby Broccoli. But next month, you know, this was a. I think I made the right decision here because. We had such a fun time with Connery in this movie that I think it's we should continue the Connery train a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, and next month, um, so this is another aspect of me that I've, I've, hint, I've talked about a little bit over the podcast, but I'm a major Disney fan. Next month is D23 Expo. This movie is just celebrating uh, an anniversary, a major anniversary year. So, why not go back to the first Connery movie uh, in Hollywood, the movie that made them decide to cast him as James Bond. Why don't we take a look at that early Connery and see if we see the same things that Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman saw. We're going to go back and watch the very first Connery Hollywood appearance, the Disney film Darby O'Gill and the Little People, Mm. uh, which is a personal favorite of mine and I'm very excited to show it to you. Cool. All right. Well, looking forward to that. But next uh, next time uh, we talk about an official movie, it's not a James Bond episode. It's going back to the old King of the Monsters. And we get initials. Yeah. Uh, yes. GMK. GMK. Go- Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Jimka. I'm very excited to talk about this one uh, and uh, to uh, decipher some of my opinions and see what your opinions are. Well, I'm very excited to see it. Um, okay. Well, until then, I'm done. We're done and you're done. All right, guys. It's time for the plugs. BonzillaPod at gmail.com is our email. Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007 and Facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. You can like and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud keep on listening. And I know Bond fans, you know, we're out of Bond movies. But again, I think the next couple of films we do, yeah. um, I have some really 
fun plans for us uh, in terms of what we'll be watching. So, well, we talked about it off mic, and I agree with um, I agree with the decisions that you have been making about like uh, some of the things that we'll yeah. Be so I think it's gonna, I think it's going to be a lot of f- still fun to be had. Oh yeah, definitely. And like I said, for our, like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, it's a film that I've been wanting to show you for a long time. I have lots of thoughts on it. And I'll be very interested to talk about it in podcast form. And, and also one of the reasons behind the decision of doing the deep dive. So you'll still definitely get your monthly dose of diving back yes. into into Bond into and stuff episodes, like that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, guys, um, man. Nick, it's good to like a James Bond movie again. Yeah. At least for at least I can say that for myself. So no. until then, take care, everybody. Well, what? not until then. I enjoyed this one. Yeah. I don't have to wait until then. You don't have to do that. So Watch this one. Just make sure, like, if you if you write your memoirs about your best woman, just make sure they are from Philadelphia. <laughs>